We are holding in the middle of the Mimer, very powerful stuff, very powerful Mimer. Such revolutionary insight. We are holding in Sif Zion. Uh, Perek Zion, it's on page Kovchav. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to go through the questions that he asked at the beginning of the Mimer because uh, the answers to that anyways are only going to come all the way at the end, which we hope to get to much later in the night if we ever get there. So we're not going to do that. Um, the the um, He brought an idea from, we say in Ashrei every day, Yeducha Hashem kol masecha, may um, you be acknowledged by all your masecha, all your actions, all your deeds, means all creations. V'chasidecha yivarchucha, and your chasidim, your righteous ones, your pious ones, will bless you. So he brought from the fifth Chabad Rebbe in the name of the Zoyar that the word Yivarchucha means Yivarchu Koi. Yivarchu Koi means they will, blessing, and we learned always in Hasidis, blessing means to draw down, not only just to bless. Yivarchu means to draw down. Koi, related to Hanukkah, because Hanukkah is the 25th day, Hanukkah has Ko inside of it, but Koi is Malchus. Yivarchu Koi means that they will draw down light into Malchus. Malchus, we learned many times, is the source of all the worlds. And the whole purpose of creation is to shine the light down into Malchus. When we bring all the light down into Malchus, levels upon levels upon levels, eventually we have Mashiach. Because the world is filled with godly light. The worlds are derivatives from Malchus. Then he began to explain, again, this was a long discussion last week, but again, it's not essential for tonight's class, so we can we don't really have to go through it. Just one nakuda, one point that we learned last week, and that is that um, there is a big chiddush in this pasuk that even though everybody, every mitzvah that every person does is always drawing light of Hashem down from beyond creation into creation. That's what it means. Bring into malchus means what we generally refer to as yichud right? We're making a yichud, we're making a unification between transcendental infinite light and bringing it into the world. That's the whole idea. That's the whole purpose of creation. According to Hasidus especially, we learned the whole purpose is dira lo yizbarach, to illuminate the darkness of this world and to make it bright. To take the choshech, the darkness of a world that was once filled with klipa and sitra achra and other thing, to, to eliminate all the klipas, to destroy all the klipa, to fill the world with light. That's the point. That's its whole... However, so what's the big chiddush in this pasuk? The davka your chasidim will be able to be yivarchucha. So we're going to learn, and actually in the Hanukkah Maya, which follows this, that chasidim is the highest level. It's there is tzaddikim, there is yesharim, and then there is a level called chasidim. So chasidim is like within tzaddik, it's beyond beyond. So a very very high level of tzaddik, and only that person can accomplish the yivarchukai. So what's the Chiddush? If everybody else can do Yavarchul Kai, we're always doing it. Every time we do a bracha, we learn, we daven, we do a mitzvah, it's all Yavarchul Kai. We bring down light into 
the mother of creation, which is the Shekhinah, and threw that into us all. Chiddush is the place, the, chiddush, the, the novelty, Chiddush means novelty. The novelty is that we are drawing, that the place from where we are drawing from is very high, and the manner in which it is being drawn down. That's the novelty. The place from where we're drawing and the manner in which we're drawing from. Now, the place that we are drawing from is a very, very, very high place. The manner in which it is being brought down is a very, very effortless way. And that combination, to be able to draw down from the highest of the high and to be able to do it in an effortless manner, that is news. That is news worthy of talking about. That's what the Akhari is talking because there are lower levels of the divine which are more accessible to regular people or at least people that are on a, more of a little bit of a higher level in their connection to Hashem which, it's, which is easy to bring down which one can access and draw forth godly light from those levels blessings, let's talk about blessings any kind of blessing from the place and they can do it in a manner that they, in a more effortless way. That's, that's something we find. The example for that is a regular bracha. When you go to a kohen, you go to a tzaddik, a regular tzaddik, and you ask for a blessing, the tzaddik can give a blessing. What does it mean? It means the tzaddik is plugged into a certain source up there in heaven, which is the source of this human being, any person who comes to the tzaddik for a blessing, Tzaddik is able to dial up into his computer, kind of, spiritual computer, and kind of trace your soul back to its source. Take a look in the source, what kind of energy you have in your source. And sometimes, and the Tzaddik looks and he sees that there are certain blessings, there are certain good things that are potential blessings that you're not using. They're, they're, they're in your soul, they're in your, they're in your soul, they're, they're in your space. It's just that it's just that it's kind of stuck. It's kind of held up there. And the tzaddik comes along and he's able to release that energy down to the world. He's able to expedite the transmission of this of these blessings down into actuality. That is something that a tzaddik can do. And he doesn't have to pray because he's the, he's like the bank manager who can just allow the funds to be withdrawn. Even if sometimes, you know, you go to the bank, and sometimes there's a teller over there that's just being nasty, and they tell you that they're holding on to your funds, and they're not releasing it for whatever reason. So you call over a bank manager, and they can, they can remove the block, and they can, they can make it happen. So that's the situation. Sometimes in life, we have certain blessings that are supposed to come to us, but for whatever reason, they're stuck. So... We, we, we go to a tzaddik who's like a bank manager and he can get it down. And what do I mean when, when I mean it's effortless? It means he doesn't have to pray and fast and do all, implore and beg and ask God for this. Why? Because he's in control over it. It's a level that he has access to. But then we spoke last week that there are levels that are really high. Let's say we look in the bank and in the source and you have no funds in the source. You're empty. So there the question is not whether you can cash and you can draw the funds. You don't even have funds in the source. So now you have to go beyond the source. 
which is you have to go to the infinite potential and draw down a new life that has not been there. Especially in situations where there have been already a decree on the opposite. God forbid there has already been a decree that someone should be poor, or there has been already a decree that someone should, God forbid, be ill, or there should be, God forbid, a loss of life, or whatever kind of a decree. Now, it's not a question about being accessing the source, but you have to go and reach the Hashem Himself, who can, is not limited by anything, and He can change anything. Ooh, so that means reaching up to the infinite light. To reach up to the infinite light, there's no one over there that can control that. No one can control on that level. So what, the only we could reach, how can we reach? Through prayer. Prayer means it's difficult, it's hard. You have to pray, you have to daven. You're also, first of all, you're not sure you're going to be answered. A prayer is a prayer. Sometimes we're answered, sometimes we're not answered. But the, the main point over here is that the prayer involves intense work. Begging, asking, sometimes more than once. Deeply, you know, trying to make ourselves a vessel. But these are all, it's a difficult labor, it's difficult work. So what do we see from here? There's two levels. There's a level from where lower levels of, the, of godly of, of in the system kind of, where things are already within the system. Over there, not everybody, but at least there are people that are plugged in, that are able to expedite certain, certain uh, channels of energy, certain flow of energy, and they don't have to work hard, they just give a blessing, it's almost like they're commanding it and saying it, this should happen, you should have a child, you should be wealthy, you should feel better, and, and, and it happens, it's like their control. Then there are higher levels, where because it's so high, you can control it. Best you can do, you can humbly ask for it and hope for the best. The chiddush of the pasuk v'chasidecha yevarchucha, as we learned last week, is that we're that to bring down a blessing in a manner of a bracha, which bracha means you're forcing it, you're you're imposing your will. It's a little too loud. This one. you're imposing. You're imposing your will on, on that thing. This is too high. You can't do that. You can only, you can only, oh, so the bracha means that you are controlling it. You're giving a bracha. But it's coming from a place where usually only prayer, prayer reaches. And that is, how do you know this pasuk, this verse is speaking about something so high? Because it says, Yoiducha Hashem. Yoiducha means, usually means we will submit to you. So we're dealing with a level of the divine where the only way to relate to it is through submission. Not through comprehension, understanding. Because we're dealing with the infinite, transcendental levels of godliness where, where all we can do is humbly nullify our brains and our minds and everybody equally because no one has any understanding on these levels. And yet... We're saying that the pious one, the Hasidim, those that are called Hasidim, these really big, big, super mega tzaddikim, they are able to go to the place of Yoiducha, from that place, and yet draw down from there in a manner of bracha, Yivarchucha in a manner of a blessing. Last week we learned that even in this level itself, there are, there are levels. Because the Talmud tells us, very briefly, the Talmud tells us the difference between Reb Shimon, between the difference between Reb Shemim Bar Yochai and Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, in which the Talmud says that there were sages that were able to do incredible miracles and change the very dynamics of creation. 
it almost like they were like um, even over overriding God's setting of the rules. They had veto power to nullify things. But the Talmud tells us around Pinchas Ben Yar. One time he was going on a mission to go and um, and to go and uh, take people out of um, to go ra- uh, ransom people that were in captivity. And he and he came across a river, and the river and he couldn't cross the river, so he just told the river to stop for him. And the river had to stop for him. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean expediting something because if you expedite the source of the river and reveal it down here, just drawing something down from its source, the river is only going to be stronger. Obviously, that means it's to override the system. That's what you need. You need someone who's not just have power to enhance the system, but someone who will go past, beyond the whole system and, and change it from there. So we find something like that. Another case we find, sages say that the, the Zohar tells a story that one time the world needed rain and they came to Rav Shimon by Yochai. Usually when, whenever one needed rain, you would go to a tzaddik and a tzaddik would daven for rain. But when they came to Rav Shimon by Yochai, he didn't daven. He said Torah on a pasuk, and it began to rain. Okay, so we see that, okay. so he, in the discourse, he's comparing the two. It's brought in, 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 uh, in Hasidus, in, from the Alter Rebbe, in, in Lakuti Torah, and where he explains how does Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yar have that power to dominate creation? He's not a creator, he's a human being. Who gives him the right to, uh, to uh, declare, the decree on nature that nature has to do his will when, he, when that's God's business, not your business? Um, so it says, that uh, he says because these tzaddikim they were very very they were one with the Torah they studied they and the Torah became one they became they were so devoted to Torah study and Torah originates in the infinite light of God as they unified themselves with the Torah they became kind of infinite they became one with the Torah the infinite light of God that's higher than creation and from that place, they were able to dictate to creation how things should be. They're like kings. They become like an extension of God's kingship, of God's kingdom. And they have sovereignty over the world. Good. Yet, he explains, there is still a difference between these great sages and Rav Shema Bayochai. Rav Shema Bayochai is unique from amongst all of this. What's the difference? Because even though they accomplished it without praying, without even giving a blessing, they accomplished, but they just had to command. But the mere fact that they needed to command the situation, meaning they had to get involved and like put effort into it by commanding, stop the water, stop that, is a sign that um, that he's it's not, that of a certain limitation. The real, real, real ultimate power you see from Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, because Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, when they came to, to ask for rain, he didn't command that it should rain. He didn't, even, he didn't even pay attention to the idea in any way to, to um, exert effort in any way that it should rain. He was asked to rain. He started saying Torah and automatically, without any, and the Torah that he was speaking about wasn't about rain. He wasn't saying, he was giving Torah on a pasuk about and it started raining on its own. That's an indication of someone's being so transcendent and so high that 
his effect on the world doesn't even require even the tiniest bit of effort on his part. It's just because this is what he would, this is what is right to him. This is almost like, so it is that should be, so so it is. Completely nonchalantly, completely non-involved. What is the idea? This is indicating on levels of godliness that he was connected to. Where the worlds and every and all of nature and all of is absolutely insignificant to the point that he doesn't even have to pay attention to it to fix it. It's just because this is the way he would want. That's what happens. Of course, he learned Torah, but that's that's a different thing. He was he went in that place, but it's not like he needed to do something to impact the world. Okay, that's that's the idea over here when we say. Yevarchuko, the depth. Chasidecha Yevarchucha, which we're talking about in Ashrei. That only the very, very high tzaddikim, Yevarchu, they can draw down a blessing, ko, into the world, into Malchus, in a manner like Reb Shimon Bayochai, where they don't have to do the brachas in a manner. What kind of blessing are we talking about? The blessing is talk, we're talking about over here is from that level where Reb Shimon Bayochai was tapping into, where the the it's beyond 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 and its effect that it has as so again in, in our discourse over here we're not concerned about um, how much effort or what needs to be brought into the blessing what we're trying to re- talk about is the various different levels from where the blessing can come to from where the where the the levels from where the blessing can be drawn into the world as we're going to see in our fascinating discussion today depending on which level of godly light is shining within, is drawn down into Malchus, to, that will, to, in accordance to that and equivalent to that, the impact on that which is unholy in the world, how the negative gets, the negative and, the, and, the, and darkness gets eliminated. Whenever we bring light into the world, we're lighting our Hanukkah menorah now. And when we're bringing this light, darkness is dissipating. But we're going to speak now about these various different levels of light that we can be tapping into in the manner in which we, the, the darkness is eliminated. And that makes, and this is really the whole, the whole sum totality of all of man's effort. And, be, and we're going to see the progress. That's what's so amazing what we're learning today. The progress of these various higher, higher levels that we are tapping into in our Yiddishkeit, in our mitzvah observance, and it's basically a movement through history to the point where when we reach certain level of godly drawing down those higher dimensions of the divine into Malchus, which is the source of creation, that is what is going to decide the nature of the other side of unholiness and how it relates to it. In general, we learned last week, and this is where I really want to start from where we're holding, is that we learned last week that um, there are three main stages in the purification of the world. And the, th- the three stages are, um, by the, tam- the time of the Torah was given, and the Moshe Rabbeinu built the tabernacle, a mishkan, that's stage number one. Stage number two was when King Solomon built the first temple. That was phase number two. Phase number three is when Mashiach will come. When Mashiach will come, speedily in our day, uh, there will be an eradication of all of evil completely, forever and ever. No more darkness. And all the nations and all of mankind will recognize God and everybody will serve Him. 
That's going to be in the end of days. Then we have the days of Shlomo Melech, which was the highest time we've ever had in terms of the world recognizing holiness and godliness. And before that, we had the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. These three stages are all levels in how much light and what levels of the Ein Sof are we drawing into the world. Now, I want to just make an introduction. In the Mimer, we're not talking about, we're talking about the illumination that there is in the world, but he's using a more Kabbalistic term. We're drawing light into Malchus. Malchus is God's kingship, God's rulership over the world. That has different stages. So last week we learned, and this is just a brief review, last week we learned that these, that, um, I'm, I'm going to say it very briefly. I'm going to tell you the whole mimer in two minutes, and then we can learn for four hours, the whole mimer. In the, in the, in the time of, um, 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 what's it called, the Gamosha Rebbeinu, we, we drew down light, very powerful godly light, but finite light. It was, and even we were touching up, we were touching on the infinite, but it was still finite. It was a light that has somewhat a relationship to the finite creation, to the finite world. That was during the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's going to explain it. The next stage that we reached after that, was the days of Shlomo Melech, was we brought down infinite light into Malchus. In the time of Mashiach, it's not going to be the revelation of infinite light. It's going to be the revelation of the essence of God himself, not the light. These three things are going to translate into what degree and how the unholy relates to the holy. And let me tell you something very amazing. During the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, when we had a powerful manifestation of God in this world, of God's light in this world, but not the pure infinite light, the way we had to deal with unholiness is we had to fight with it. We had to do battle with it. And that was represented by the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu traveled with the Jewish people together with the Mishkan, together with the Aaron, in the desert, a place of snakes and scorpions. And whenever we traveled, we killed those snakes and scorpions, which were symbolic of powerful forces of evil that we were destroying. So Kedusha was on a powerful offensive march. We were on offense. We weren't on defense. We were moving through the satanic territory, and we were breaking. We were really chopping heads. That's what we were doing. But we had to fight. We're soon going to see what means a fight. We didn't have to literally do battle, but we had to at least enter into their territory for them to get scared. We couldn't stay in a holy place and just our, 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 our power should... Shlomo Melech's time was a whole different story. We didn't, we didn't do any wars. Shlomo Melech didn't even travel the countryside. Shlomo Melech stayed in Jerusalem, in Yerushalayim. His light was so powerful because it was the infinite light spread over the whole world. No wars, no fights. All of unholiness completely surrendered to Kedusha. It was a powerful time. Not only that, we were pulling converts. We were pulling converts from the farthest corners of the world. People were coming to hear Shlomo Melech's wisdom. So we were influencing two ways. We, sub, we, we nullified all opposition. We also attracted converts. Stage but, 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 there were those. The main thing is that even the converts that we, first of all, two things. Those who, the, the unholy didn't essentially transform. It was just so overwhelmed by the power of Kedusha that it was silenced. It was neutralized. But it wasn't transformed. It was neutralized. And those people that we did inspire, those that, the sparks of holiness that we drew close to us, was only the more sensitive sparks. Because not all of humanity came running to Shlomo. 
It was only those that are more refined. When Mashiach comes, since it's going to be a revelation of the essence of God, not God's light, what that is going to do is, number one, it's going to transform every creature, not just neutralize the unholy. It's going to transform it. Number two, not only sparks that are sensitive, but it's going to reach every spark of holiness, which means the spark that's in every creature and every being, even those that have become so, so darkened that they don't even know that they're a spark anymore. They've become complete. They've lost all godly content. Even those are going to be inspired. And step number three, even deeper and deeper than that, not only the spark is inspired, but actually the created reality is going to essentially, inherently be transformed and as we want to use a different word, synchronized with God and with holiness. That's when the essence is revealed. These three levels of Malchus, which are related to the idea of Yevarchu Ko. What he wants to explain in the end of the Mimer, Chasidecha Yevarchucha, is that level of Mashiach. Is when we're bringing down that which the Chasidim can only bring down, that level of piousness called Chasidecha, it relates to this level. Now, now hold on one more thing. These three levels of light in Malchus are referred to the lower Moshe Rabbeinu's or that he brought down in Malchus is called tzedakah um, because the meaning of tzedakah is that you give somebody what they need. But you, and the rule by tzedakah is that you have to give them what they need. How much do you have to give someone if they come to ask you? And you have the means. I'm talking if you don't have, if you have the means. So you have to give them as much as they need to be comfortable. What's considered comfort? Whatever they were accustomed to. But you don't have to give them more than that. You don't have to make them wealthy. Yeah, you find out. If the person lived a very comfortable life and they were used to living in a... In a, in a, in a if a person was used to eating just a little piece of bread every day, then that's all you have to give them, bread and water. If they were used to eating... Steak, you have, to give, you have to provide them. Kids say, well, you're, you're on charity. Why are you eating steak? No, that's what the person was accustomed to for all his life. Something happened, he lost his money. You, if you have the means, if you have the ability, you've got to feed him. And it's not, and that's not called wealth. That's called giving them what they need, whatever they're comfortable with. Sages say you don't have to make them wealthy. What is wealth, then what does wealth mean? Wealth means more than what you need. So, Malchus, the Shekhinah, and the creation in general needs tzedakah because the world lost its light. The Shekhinah lost her light. When, by, when creation happened, God withdrew all the light from the Shekhinah. This is hinted to in the idea that the moon became small. When God shrunk the moon, what it really means, moon is Malchus, is that he blocked the light in Malchus, that there's no light in Malchus. When we give back the light to the Shekhinah, which was once in her, when we restore her light to her original state, then we're giving her tzedakah. That's what tzedakah is. Because whatever she once had before even creation, I'm not going to get into that. It's a little too of a deep thing because we discussed it last week to discuss what this means. That the Malchus once had a lot of light and now she lost her light. And now you're giving her back the light that she had. We're not going to discuss that right now. I'm just giving you the idea. Is that... To restore that light to Malchus, which Malchus once had, and giving it back, that's called tzedakah. That level of light happened by Moshe Rabbeinu. We completed tzedakah, we made Malchus back comfortable again. Next stage, however, was in the days of Shlomo Melech. That's a time where the Navi says there was affluence. The Jewish people were wealthy. The reason we were wealthy physically is because spiritually we were wealthy. 
Why? Because the infinite light was shining in the Shekhinah. The Orin Tzot, which doesn't have any whatsoever relationship to creation. So therefore, by Malchus not having that, she's not considered uncomfortable. By giving her that, you're giving her an extra gift. You're giving her affluence. But now, what's the third level? We said by Mashiach, it's even a third level. Here is a third level. The third level is when you're, when you're giving a wealthy person. The sages say an interesting thing. What's the difference between tzedakah and chesed? And after this thought, we learn inside. Okay, we begin learning. So, so, so hear this. What is, oh, tzedakah is not chesed. Sages say, what's between chesed and tzedakah? So there's many differences. But one of the differences is tzedakah is only for the poor. And chesed is for the poor and the rich. That's what chesed is. A rich man also. But the question is, what kind of chesed? It means, chesed means to give somebody something. So what are you giving the rich? You can think if he has a billion dollars, you're giving him another billion. See, now he has two billion. But, so first of all, why would you even be giving him? He's rich already. Okay, I'm not getting into that. The concept of chesed is to give even to a rich as well. You can give to Chesed can be applicable to the poor and to the rich. question is, what are you giving him? It can't be you're giving him more wealth because if for whatever reason this, if rich means you have more, 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 you have much, if it's possible for you to add more, that means you, were, that means you weren't really fully rich because you were, you were lacking whatever that richness that you're adding now. So in concept, it can't be you're giving him more of something that he had before, just more of it. Because then he was never really rich in that sense. It must be that you're giving him something that the fact that he didn't have it didn't in any way, didn't in any way mitigate his wealth. That means he's getting something entirely, entirely outside of what, what, what was. So he can be fully wealthy, totally affluent in every level. And when you gave him, it's a surprise. It has nothing to do with what he had before. And that is the ultimate revelation of godliness. That's the revelation of the essence of God, which is going to be when Mashiach comes in Malchus. And when that happens, and that's called beyond Ashiras, beyond wealth. Okay. Malchus is what? Malchus is in everything. Malchus is the, is the words of God. Malchus is called God's mouth. It's the Shekhinah. What does Shekhinah mean? It dwells within the creation. There's a spark of the Shekhinah in, in all beings, in all aspects of creation. In our world as well. Manifests in all levels of existence as Malchus becomes the power. It's the power of God that is invested within creation. It's, and it's through that power that he creates the world. Now, the reason why he, God had initially darkened the light of Malchus is because if Malchus, this is a very important point before we learn, if Malchus would be enlightened with godliness at the time of creation, then she would be too, too strongly aware of God's infinite truth. And that obviously would be transmitted to her creations that she's creating. And it would not allow them to live in independence. It would make them sense that they, their existence is God. And then the whole point of creation wouldn't be able to be realized. The whole point of creation is that we creations feel autonomy, we feel separate, and we, therefore we have free choice. But if our mother of our existence, if the bedrock of our existence would be enlightened, so we would all be enlightened. So what did God do? God makes kiviyachal, so to speak, his shekhinah, which is a part of him, ignorant. So she doesn't know what's going on. That's why Malchus sometimes is called behema. 
She mamish doesn't have das, she doesn't have the weirdness. And our avoda through Torah and mitzvahs is to bring light into Malchus more and more and more and more and more. Once creation is here already, once and then afterwards we restore the light, being that, and we do it in the way that the Torah tells us to do, we don't nullify our existence and our, and our, and our beingness in the presence of such godly light. We're able to facilitate it and live together with God and not be canceled in that powerful revelation. But this goes through stages. First we bring back the light that the Shekhinah lost, then we add more. Okay. levar, so they were holding sivzai. Ubechdei levar, in order to understand, inyan ha-chesed, the idea of what, what is chesed, that is higher than wealth, than affluence. So we're holding Zion, um, page Kufchaf, yeah, a couple of pages up. In order to understand the concept of chesed that is above ashiras, beyond wealth, Magdim Ba'amaymer, he prefaces in the, in the discourse, Bir the understanding of the idea of wealth that was in the days of Shlomo Melech. Which Shlomo Melech's wealth was considered the highest wealth. This was the highest level of wealth. Mavarani explains. You see, the sages say an amazing thing. The Zohar says, Why was Shlomo Amelech the one who built the Beis Amigdash, the temple? Why him, out of all people? See, building the temple meant that the world was receiving the highest transmission of the divine, the highest godly revelation. We know the second temple didn't compare to the first temple. So there was ever a time when God's light was revealed in the world in a permanent way, Giving of the Torah was just for you know an hour. I don't know how long the giving of the Torah took. Ten commandments, but in a permanent, settled way for a couple of hundred years, uh, it was when in the days of the temple. Why was Shlomo Melech? Why his? Why was his reign that that period? And the reason is because the Shekhinah Malchus, the world, is compared to the moon. God is compared to the sun. Malchus and the creation is compared to the moon doesn't have its own light, it needs to receive, it's initially dark, it's receiving the light from the sun. The way it works, it takes 15 days for the moon to be lit up by the sun completely. Meaning in sense of the moon shining that light to the earth. 15 days. And then it begins to wane again and to, and to lose its light. And then again, again, it's born again. And it's born. So you have 15 days of that, of that, of that increase of the waxing of the of the light of the moon as it gets wider and bigger and bigger, good, fine, fifteen days. Now, when did godly light start shining in this world historically? When did it happen? It was dark until Abraham. Basically, all of mankind was corrupt. Everybody was rebelling. There was maybe one or two tzaddikim, you know, Noah and Adam and whatever, shame his children. But it wasn't the movement. Where did a movement begin to recognize God? and to bring righteousness and morality and decency and to live a rectified, purposeful, meaningful life. Who began teaching that? Avram Avinu started bringing Hashem into the world. So that was, Avram was the first generation. So it was like the birth of the moon. Light was shining into the world. And then if you go from Avram, seventh generation is Moshe. And then you go another seven generations is Shlomo Melech. Actually, literally, count the tzaddikim, 
Yaakov, Yehuda, Peretz, you go down, it's exactly 15. So the Zohar says Shlomo Melch was the 15th one, and that's why in his days the moon was in its fullest. Which means God's light was fully manifest in the world. Now, um, so understanding that, so that was called the wealthy time. The noise of Lazar, so what does that mean? In addition to this, Shanim Malchus, it was drawn into Malchus, which is the which is the moon, which is Levana, which is the moon, Sihara. Sihara is an Aramaic word for the moon. Hey Hapratsufim the five lights that were taking away from her. We learned last week that when you look at there's a Pasuk that says, um, Atahu Hashem Levadecha, you are God alone. Atta Asisa Sashamayim, you made the heavens and the earth. So the word Atta is mentioned two times in the in this Pasuk. The first time, however, it says Atta, Aleph Taf Hey. The second time it says Atta, but it's lacking the hey. It's as if it says At Asisa Asashamayim. You in feminine terms created heaven. It doesn't say Atta. So how come in the same verse, two times the word Atta, the first time it's full with the hey? So we learned last week, is because the, talking about two stages. Means you God are alone. This is pre-creation. When God was alone, even though he emanated all the sefirot, the attributes, but there was no creation yet. Malchus, which is called Atta, I'll see why Malchus is called Atta, because Malchus is God's mouth, the ability to speak the words, just like communication. A king communicates. Speech. The letters and the word Atta is an aleph and a tuf. So it's got all the letters, the first letter and the last letter. So Atta, the Aleph through the Taf, was part of God's exclusive existence, no, no creation yet. Then Malchus was filled with light. Which light? The light of the higher attributes. Malchus is the last sphera, the last attributes after ten sphera, after nine sphera comes Malchus. Malchus. Because you have Chachma, Bina, Das, we're not going to go through all that, right? So there's a channeling of light. Malchus was illuminated with the lights of all the higher sphera. But then when it came time to creation, what did we say earlier? If Hashem is not going to make Malchus dark, then the creations will be too aware of Him. Right? So when it came to At, Atta, Asisa, Sashamayim, Hashem took all the five lights from Malchus and took it away. He took away the hay. So Malchus became letters without a hay. It's almost like, I'll give you an example, it's almost like you're speaking words and you're forgetting even that you're talking and your words are just mumbling but you don't have your thought connected to the words. It's like sometimes we do when we daven. We got, our minds get so pulled away that we're not focusing and we're just saying words and there's no thought connected. That's what it means. Malchus is left lifeless, just words. And she becomes the life force of creation, but without the inner content that's not shining in her. So which light was taking away from Malchus? It says five lights. The, the light of Malchus was taking away from her. The light of the Ze'er Anpin, which are the six emotions higher than Malchus. The light of Bina was taken away from her. The light of Chachma was taken away from her. And finally, the light of Keser, of the crown. Five levels of light were taken away from her. And what do we mean? How can she lose even the light of Malchus? Because she lost even her own light. Because what the power of Malchus that comes down to create the world is the Malchus as it descends into the lower worlds, not, not the innermost element of Malchus. So the inner element of Malchus, which is full of light and connected to the Ein Sof, that too was blocked. And Malchus became totally, totally blocked. 
and she lost all of her, all of her light. It's like sometimes in our own life, when God wants to test us, He blocks us from our own light, and we just suddenly just confused, and we don't know what's going on, and we don't see anything, we don't feel anything. We forget all the knowledge we have and all our wisdom. Something like that happened to Malchus. A total what we call katnos amoichen. She lost everything. Now, oh, so in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, what happened? All of that was restored. The hey partzufim shenechzeru, the five partzufim that were lost, came back. Nimshach, the noise of lezesh, nimshach b'malchus, levanas ara, hey partzufim shenechzeru. Nimshach ba, in addition to this, was also drawn into her. Gama giloi de pnimiyas hakeser. See, the five levels that were taken away and were restored includes keser, but the outer part of keser, which is called arech anpin. Now we're talking about pnimiyas hakeser, the innermost of the crown, which is referred to as atik. Atik means the in, that which is removed from creation completely. It's atik, the word atik means disconnected, that which is utterly above and beyond and removed from any whatsoever cre- adjustment of God's light. God didn't adjust his light. It's the pure Ein Sof as the Ein Sof is, without any, even the slightest adjustment towards a creation. Uma, and therefore, when that light is shining in Malchus, you can understand that that's powerful affluence. Uma, now he's going to show you how that, how that wealth and that affluence manifested in the world. How do you see it? Uma, Shiras, the Malchus, Knesset Yisrael, and from this wealth of Malchus, which went into, which is, what's Malchus called? Malchus is the mother of our souls. So when Malchus became wealthy, what happened? Nimshacha, Shiras, Muflaga, Yisrael, Gam Lamata. So the Jewish people below also became very wealthy. So that, that was a time of great wealth. Like it says, Ashira, Ashirus Meflaga Begashmias. We became literally, the Jewish people were very, very wealthy physically. Va'ad in material things. It's It says that all of, the, all of his utensils in his palace were all of gold because silver was considered, didn't have any value. So everything, all the utensils, everything was made out of gold. That was the wealth of Shlomo HaMelech. But it wasn't only Shlomo. It was, you know, the, the people in general had such wealth. Vashiras, and that was physical material wealth. But it also manifested in something else. Vashiras Mufleges Baruchniya, spiritually too. There was an incredible wealth. What was the, what was the spiritual wealth? The Dafka, precisely in the days of Shlomo Melech, the Beis Hamikdash was built. What is so great about the Beis Hamikdash being built? Because the revelation of God that was in the Beis Hamikdash, how do you see that it's wealth? Because it was even a greater revelation than the revelation that was during the time of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, when the Jews traveled in the desert. And that's wealth. Mishkan was not considered wealth, but that is wealth. To understand how that works. Ula haisif, let's add. In order for you to understand how wealthy we're talking about, really, this that Shlomo Melech had it greater, 
a greater godly revelation was facilitating. In the days of Shlomo, there was a greater presence of God in this world, greater than the Mishkan. That was even before Shlomo HaMelech built the temple. That was just the mere fact that Shlomo was king. As soon as he ascended the throne, he achieved a powerful revelation. Adding to that the Beis HaMikdash, that when the Beis HaMikdash was built, that, that increased the light way above than what was before. How do we know that the light was already so powerful as soon as Shlomo HaMelech was built? We'll see in a minute. Even before the Beis HaMikdash was built. Why did the base, why was the base Amigdash built through Shlomo? Even though his father, King David, had already prepared all the David Amelech had already had he collected the money, he had already all the resources, and he had the full architectural design already prepared. He was ready to build it. The reason the construction did not start until after King David died was because God gave specific instructions that you should not build it in your times. Your son is going to build it. Why? Because he says, you have blood in your hands. It was already done through David. Like it says, Shlomo is going to be a man of peace. And peace and quiet and tranquility I will give in his days. And therefore, he will build a house for my name. The Yeduat is known. Okay. So again, what do we see from here? That the prerequisite for Shlomo Melech to build the base is because Shlomo Melech was in his days was peace. Now we got to wonder why was there peace in the days of Shlomo Melech? One thing is for sure. The Jewish people, like we see today, are not lacking enemies. And it's not only in one place, they're all across the world. As we're mamash seeing right now, they're all across the world with the entire, <laughs> and you'd think after, after thousands of years, you'd think people would already have learned something. No, 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 no. We're seeing the exact full-fledged anti-Semitism across the entire globe. So, Shlomo Melech, what happened? Everybody became tzaddikim, everybody became Jew lovers. What happened? The answer is, why was there peace in his days, in Shlomo Melech's days? That is a direct derivative of the powerful, godly light that was shining through Shlomo and from Jerusalem. That no, that, that it's not that there weren't any enemies, but the power of his kingdom and his power of his, his people were so awed by him that they, they would, no one would dare, uh, no one would dare um, oppose him. The Yeduat is known. This that all the people, there was no war during his entire reign, and everybody was nullified. It was the time of the most peaceful time for the Jewish people. There was peace and, and, and tranquility. It's not Shlomo. It wasn't Shlomo. It wasn't that Shlomo was a frightening king that everybody was... You know, terrified of him, like you know, uh, Saddam Hussein or whatever. <laughs> the people in his country were terrified of him. He wasn't a tyrant; he was a benevolent, good ruler. People were scared of him. It wasn't him. There was something powerful coming through him. God was felt very strongly in the world. Through him, he projected 
a sense of the divine existence, of God's existence, very strongly onto the world. Sheheir al Yadeh were shining through him. So what does this all prove? And this is even before he built the temple. Because again, why was he told that he will build the temple? Because in his time there will be peace. Why was there peace? Because no one can oppose the godly light that was shining through him. So you see, even before the temple was built, there was already tremendous godly revelation in Shlom HaMelech. Now, however, let's take it a step further. Once Shlom HaMelech built the Beis HaMikdash, which increased God's presence in the world, maybe tenfold of what was before. So you can only imagine how rich it was, that experience, how deep that was. Another idea, not only the idea that that, that no one opposed him, it was another, even more than that. Not only was no one opposing him, but he was attracting a tremendous following. People traveled far and wide to Shlomo HaMelech. He was such a wise man. And everybody wanted to hear Chachmas Shlomo. The wisdom of Shlomo, he taught of his wisdom. But what he's saying is a very great idea. It wasn't just knowledge that people were seeking. Consciously they were seeking knowledge. Subconsciously. What was really pushing them to go, there was a powerful attraction. Why? Because ultimately every creation wants to get closer to its creator. Ultimately everybody wants to pull. And Shlomo HaMelech had that godly light exuberating, shining from him. And as a result of that, people were drawn to him. They thought they're coming to him because of information and knowledge they would gain from him. The real reason is because their souls were thirsting for, to get closer to Yerushalayim and get closer to that great light. The deeper reason, on this that people came to him from all over, because they were, dream, dream, they were being drawn to, to the divine. Where else do we find something like that? By Mashiach it says, And all the nations are going to flock to him like, like rivers. They're going to come like flowing on rivers, all the nations. Love this, that everybody's going to be coming to him. They're going to be drawn to the divine, to God, to Hashem. So what do you see from here? Another indication how powerful his revelation was. It's one thing that no one opposed him. It's another thing that he was able to pull people from across the world. And he didn't have a marketing uh, thing going on. He didn't have like a, a you know, people that he was able to, uh, f- uh, you know, uh, send out a tweet or something and, and get people coming. And all that didn't exist. So how is he getting the whole world to listen to him? It was something spiritual. It was something in the air that was like pulling people. Because the great light that was shining then, Mashach Elov was drawing to itself the sparks that were in the nations, similar to a great big flame. You have a blazing fire. If you take small little uh, candles, small little flames, and you put it next to a huge fire, you'll find an interesting thing. Instead of the, the flames going upward, which they usually do, next to a fire, they'll go to the side. They'll try to like, they'll be pulled. You'll see that they're pulling towards that big fire. Fire pulls fire. Since Shlomo HaMelech created such a powerful display of godly light in Yerushalayim, all the sparks everywhere were like seeking to get close to him. 
And since the revelation that was shining that, was such a powerful revelation, therefore therefore also the sparks, that were at the most farthest places, they were drawn to the revelation, that was shining through Shloimeh. Like it says, Queen Sheba, she heard about Shloma Melech. Shama Sashtema Shloma. She heard the name of Shloma Melech. And what? L'shem Hashem for the name of God. You see? So he's just proving to the idea that she wasn't just coming to hear wisdom, she was coming to get close to Hashem. Vatava, and she came, Yerushalma, she came to Jerusalem. Okay. So now we've established that Shlomo HaMelech, that means rich. We were physically wealthy in the days of Shlomo HaMelech. We were also spiritually wealthy because we had the greatest revelation of God in this world to the point that we were able to touch the four corners of the earth with that light. That's how powerful it was. It's very thing. It's not him. It's the progression of the generations. It's the foundation. Moshe Rabbeinu had to lay the foundation. Moshe Rabbeinu had the toughest job because he had to actually bring God down for the first time to earth. Once that was accomplished, it was a build-up. And after that, Shlomo was like at the, he was like the midget on the, not a midget, he himself was a giant himself. But in a sense, we can say like, a, like the, the, the midget on the giant shoulders, the little guy, right? So he was, came after all of that. and Therefore, he had that extra power to be able to accomplish that. Now, now he's going to tie the two things together. This great godly wealth is what caused Shlomo Melech to have no tranquil and no war, like we said before. But now he's going to do a very careful gewaldig, this is gewaldig, he's going to do an unbelievable, amazing analysis between the, the time of, when we analyze the relationship of the holy to the unholy during the time of Shlomo Melech's reign or during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu in the Midbar. And how the two interacted with each other. The higher the light, we're going to see the less the light needs to, the, the less effort we need, going back to what we were talking in the beginning. When the, the higher something is, it's in, it, 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 it shows itself in the amount of effort that it needs to influence something. If it can accomplish it effortlessly, it means that it's very, very powerful. Now this that Shlomo was considered a man of peace, which means the manner in which he was elevating the world, the manner in which he was extracting sparks and refining and separating. Because we know that since the days of the Etzadas, of the tree of knowledge, where good and evil got mixed together, our job is to refine and separate the good from the bad, make clarity. Yes. Um, and this that he was able to accomplish that. He didn't need a war in order to purify or to re- refine the sparks from their husks, from the klipa, from the shells that were trapping them. The nitzutzes were drawn to him on their own. He didn't have to do effort. He didn't have to send people to get them. They came on their own. Meaning, even though we said in the last parak that even in the beginning of Shlomo HaMelech's days, even before the Beis HaMikdash was done, he was already a man of Menucha. 
And quite on the contrary, it's because he was a man of Menucha, that's why he built the Beis HaMikdash. Nevertheless, in this Menucha, in this tranquility, there is levels. It increased, just like we said before, the light increased. The level of holiness that was in the Beis HaMikdash was more than the holiness that was in, in the world in the days of Shlomo before he built. See, we have to differentiate in Shlomo Melech's times as two eras. Pre-Beis HaMikdash, post-Beis HaMikdash. So in the second phase, after post-Beis HaMikdash, there was much more light than before. So too the level of Menucha, the level of calmness and lack of, of, of opposition and so on, was deeper after the Beis HaMikdash was built. Let's see why. Because he gives why? So he's going to explain. Because what we're really saying is that the, the, that the Beis HaMikdash is considered a tranquil time versus the Mishkan, which was not so tranquil, which was a time of war, spiritual battle. Now we're going to see that this idea that it was tranquil, when you, com- when you compare both, you can understand that it's Dafko and the Beis HaMikdash are standing. Not Shlomo Melech's times before, because that's somewhat, but not the peak of it. Let's see why. Because let's first get to the fundamentals of why the revelation that was in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu required a battle. And the revelation that was in the time of Shlomo HaMelech allowed for a tranquil and peaceful rectification and refinement of creation. Why? So it depends on... During the time of the Mishkan, there was also a birur. There was also a refinement happening. Koilo, including, when we say the time of the Mishkan, we don't only mean the, the era of the Mishkan, we mean the Mishkan itself. Koilo gamma gilu, including even the revelation. Sheheyer baha oron, in the ark, which are carrying the tablets. Shehoyer be Mishkan, that was in the Mishkan. Still, nevertheless, as great as it was, you see that there was a certain, a certain uh, limit to it, because the way it had to deal with that which is unholy in the world was in a manner of mulchama. was in a manner of war. But the rectification, but the revelation, the purification that was through the time of the Beis HaMikdash, was in a manner of peace. This is all stated in the Zohar. What does it say in the Zohar? Train inun have the Amru Kuma Hashem. There are two beings who said, Kuma Hashem, God, get up. Two people who said that. Moshe and David. Moshe and King David, Moshe Rabbeinu and King David, David Amelech, were both people who said, Kuma Hashem. The difference was, Moshe says, Kuma Hashem, Vayafutsu Avecha, may your enemies scatter. Vayanusu Misanecha, and those who hate you, let them escape, let them flee from before you. David Amelech says, in preparation for the Holy Temple, Kuma Hashem, get up God, Lemnucha Secha, to your, to your resting place. Get up, so that you can sit down and rest. So here's an interesting thing. Moshe Rabbeinu was calling God to battle. He says, Kuma Hashem, we're going to war. Let your enemies scatter. And King David, who's referring to, to the next generation, is saying, Kuma Hashem, go rest in the base. It's going to be Menucha. So you see that whatever was accomplished during the time of Moshe in the Mishkan, which, called, which required some kind of a war, 
was this very same thing was accomplished in the days of, of the Shlomo Melech without a war. Now, why, how does that work? Moshe Amar Moshe said, Kuma Hashem vayafutsu avecha, may your enemy scatter. David Amar and David says, Kuma Hashem lemnuchasecha, may you get up God to your resting. Umavur ba Maimer, and he explains in the Maimer, this that the Mishkan and the Oro, the tabernacle and the, and the Ark, were traveling in the desert was it, it, its purpose, its intention was to nullify the shells, the unholy forces are called in Kabbalistic terminology shells, to nullify these shells that were in the desert. The desert is generally is considered a place where uh, it's not a, it's not an, uh, a place of human habitat, and it's a place where there's lacking life. It's dry; nothing grows there. It's the opposite of holiness. Holiness shears and gives. The fact that the very earth itself is kind of selfish, is dry, and doesn't give, doesn't produce anything. There's no water. That means there's lacking life. And whatever does grow over there, many many of the plants that grow there are poisonous. And in addition to that, the creatures that are, that, that, that are there are mainly snakes, scorpions, and other things, shows you the physical dynamic, the, 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 the physical landscape of something is an indication of its spiritual energy as well. So the desert is a place of, that is the headquarters of the unholy. Um, and the reason why the Jewish people intentionally, God took them through that desert, was because since God knew that eventually we're going to go into exile, and we are, the, we are going to have to deal with immense forces of darkness and powers. So we needed to, so what Hashem did was, He had prepared the healing before the, before the wound. Two, a, a, over a thousand years before we were going to go into exile, God had already crushed and, 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 and weakened the powers of unholiness to a very great degree. Because when the Jewish people traveled, and it wasn't just an ordinary, um, it wasn't just a regular caravan over here. You had, first of all, you had 600,000 souls, which those souls were, were super mega souls, every single one of them. Because every single soul, these souls were the root souls of all of our souls. We are just little tiny branches, little fragments of those souls. And then they had, in addition to that, they had Moshe, they had Aaron, the high priest, their sons, the 70 Zakanim. They also had the tabernacle. They had trumpets, which were, this all was like the entire army. So these were like the heavy guns. And when they traveled in the desert, by just marching in the desert, it says that the snakes and scorpions was killed by the clouds of glory that marched in front of them, and the Oren went in front of them. Spiritually, that means that we decimated the forces of the unholy since that time. Okay, so you see, we broke we broke and destroyed darkness. Basically, demonic, satanic forces were destroyed in a very big way. More than in Galus? In Galus, we also do it. But in Galus, we do it in, in, a, in a more difficult way. We wrestle literally. We have to fight. When Moshe Rabbeinu marched through the Midbar, it's, he's gonna, first he's going to refer to it as a battle. But then he's going to explain it's not really a battle. Because the mere appearance of the Jewish people sent the enemies fleeing. We didn't have to actually, um, we didn't have to even pull the trigger once. That's the idea. We didn't have to, we didn't have to, we didn't have to fire a bullet. But, we didn't have to fire the gun. But, we had to at least show up in the desert. 
Shlomo HaMelech, we can stay there, no one even would think to fight us. In Golos is where a real battle happens. We enter actually into the Klipot, and we have to wrestle and fight with them. And we're going to see there's a quality in that. Because you really can only transform somebody and something only if you enter into his world, his or her world, and from within you argue it out. So there is a benefit of actually descending to the place from where you need a fix and really wrestling with it. There is a benefit that we're going to discuss all of that. We're going to get to it. But let's first see. The Zesha Mishkan Varanai Mahalchem Bemidbar Kadeh Levata Lesaklipas came to nullify the Klipas Shoy Bemidbar there with the Midbar. Choshim snakes, Srafim, and, uh, and um, serpents, Vakravim, and uh, scorpions. And which are, in addition to their physical snakes, these are spiritual forces. Ulevarer and to, and to purify. Ulevarer says, and it suits the Kedusha. And to raise the holy sparks, Shanaflu Lisham, that fell into the desert, there were sparks of holiness that were there. And when we traveled over there, we picked up many of these, these all these sparks of holiness that were there. Hubirur Bederech Muhammad. That's called, this type of, of, of process this pro- was called a refinement, but a refinement in a manner of battle, of war. Kamoi. An example that is given is Melech Sheyotzim in Makomo, a king that goes out from his place. And he goes to the enemy's territory, to wage war with him, and to conquer him. As the, 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 the king has to actually go down to the enemy to fight him. Meaning, the mere fact that the king is a king is not enough to scare his enemies away. So they're going to they're gonna do things against his will. They're going to be terrorists. Who knows what they're going to be doing. In order to stop them, he, has to, he, he himself, or his military, but he has to send troops, or he himself comes down with his troops to that place. Now by him coming, they get scared. They're not going to fight him when he comes to town. They all go running into their caves. But he has to come. He's giving an example of a king who wants to, a king who wants to, um, 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 uh, put down a revolt against him. So the mere fact that they can revolt against him, that people are thinking of the revolt, shows in a certain weakness in his power. That if he would be really, 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 uh, a really all-powerful, no one would even think of of, of, of of revolting against him or putting up a fight, right? So the mere fact that he, that he needs to go down to the place in order to put his foot down, to scare them, is showing that they have that, that on, 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 on a lack of his of his sovereignty, a weakness in his in his in his power. Okay? And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu had to say, And which you're wondering, because you're like, who's the king? <laughs> Talking about God. Yeah. God is very gentle with the world. He allows it to go through a process. Of course, he could have blasted them away in one second. The level of the divine revelation that was coming through the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and Moshe Rabbeinu was powerful, but it was not that powerful that it should scare all the klipot and all the forces of this, that they shouldn't even dare to, 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 to oppose it. He had to at least enter into their territory for them to scatter. The Aron, which was like considered like the king's chariot, the king had to come with his chariot. 
Kuma Hashem, get up, God, and your enemies will scatter. The yesh nam oivim, we can detect, we can discern whether our enemies, we have to fight with them. This was the revelation during the time of the Mishka. However, the rectification that happened through the revelation that happened in the Beis HaMikdash, was in a manner of peace and tranquility. The Shlomo HaMelech didn't go anywhere. Shlomo HaMelech never stepped foot out of Jerusalem to go fight a war. He stayed in his place. Not only that, not only didn't he have to slay the, the, you know, the, 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 the dragons or whatever, didn't have to go fight them. More than that. And the sparks came, were drawn to him. And that's why David said, Get up God to your menuch. Now he makes a little parenthetical, important distinction. The Bekama Makomos, he says, just to note, I want you to know, that sometimes it is explained that even the time of Moshe Rabbeinu in the Midbar, when the Jews were going through, that rectification, that purification is considered a peaceful. That's not really considered war. That is also considered peaceful. Why? Because at the very bottom, at the very end, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have to fire any bullets. They didn't have to actually, actually fight. So what he's going to say over here, and that's why in some Hasidic discourses, they refer to the as an example of being able to refine something and elevate something without a fight. They bring an example of Moshe Rabbeinu in the Midbar. So how are we saying over here that what? That that is considered war. So he says, well, it depends relative to what? Compared to real battle, it's considered a peaceful situation. It's like an army needing to just pass through a certain place to, to put down a, a, a uh, to make a point. Right? You just have to, you have to go there. But on the other hand, compared to the time where the army doesn't even have to go anywhere, because the country is so mighty and so strong that no one would even entertain the thought to even think of, uh, uh, of, 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 of saying something, like Stalin. <laughs> like you, you, not only didn't you say anything against him, you didn't even think anything against him. That's how terrified the people were. Okay, obviously, that's in a tyrant. But in Shlomo Melech, it was in a positive way. In, in, in other places, it is, it is uh, seen that the birer, the rectification that happened through the Aron traveling through the Midbar, who is considered a birer, a rectification, in a manner of Menucha. Because when they're talking about Menucha, Menucha meaning tranquility that is explained over there, who Shahabiru is that the way the birer is happening, it's happening effortlessly. You see, there's two things about the, the, the idea of menucha. One thing in menucha is that, you don't, that you're, you're, you don't have to put in effort. Menucha, menucha means resting. The other Indian in menucha is that you can stay in your place. So what he wants to say is like this. That Moshe Rabbeinu's menucha was only a menucha in one thing. And that is that he didn't have to actually exert himself to destroy the unholy they fell like flies in front of him just by him going there. But the second element of Menucha, where you don't even have to go out, that, 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 that was lacking. That's the idea. 
Shahabiru Bedarach Mamela. The Kivan the Bitala Klipo is since the Bittal of the Klipas, the nullification of the Klipot. Ubiran it sutsis and the and the elevation of the spark, Shanoflubaham that fell in them. Al Yadeya Gilui Shahir Bemishkan through the revelation that was in the Mishkan, Hoya Bedarach Mamela was in an was in a, a manner of on its own without having to actually dis, to strangle them. Didn't have to actually do something. Therefore, gama in the Mishkan. That's why also that rectification of the Aryan and the Mishkan, Nikra Birur, it's called a Birur Bederach Menucha, it's called a peaceful Birur. Avalamitis in Yana but it's not the true meaning of Menucha. Because the real true meaning of rest, who Shahamavarer, the Mavarer, meaning the one that is doing the rectification, Eino Yoyrid Lomakam Hamizbarer. He doesn't have to descend at all to the place of the one that is being refined and fixed. He remains in his place. By him shining his own light. And in the case of a king, his power, his renown, his fame, his strength, his wisdom, his knowledge, his, his whatever it is, is so, is so heard far and wide that, that, that everybody surrenders. Shemeir ala mizbarer, that is shining on the mizbarer, on the person that is being fixed. Either the surrenders or even deeper than that, who nimshach, he's able to pull them. Ba'atzmoy, he can pull them lahamavarer to him on their own without him having to go out to them. Umenucha ba'oifen zeh, and this level of tranquility, this was only in the days of Shlomo and he gives now he's going to give a great example of these three, these three categories in our own lives. I'm talking about a king. Fine, what does it have to do with me? So he's going to give you in your own life our rectification that we do in the world around us. We can see it in these three levels. How? We know that we have an impact on the world when we study Torah. We also know we have an impact on the world when we pray. Now, during, and he's going to explain the difference between prayer and, and Torah is as follows. Prayer, in the Zohar refers to prayer as Shas Tzloisa, the time of davening. Shas Krava is a time of a fierce battle. It's a bloody war. What do we mean by that? Obviously, he's not talking about prayer in the sense of asking God for your needs. He's not talking about prayer just reading, uh, you know, saying the words. Even though for some people that too is a battle. But what we mean over here a bloody battle is we're talking about the deeper sense of Hasidic prayer. And what does that mean? Prayer is a time when you want to make, you want to open yourself up to the divine truth, to God's reality, in which you begin to desire to be close to Hashem and, you, and develop a love to God. Problem is that there is a part within the human being that's not interested in that. There's a part within the human being that just wants to enjoy the physical pleasures of life. In, oh, just to get the truth, get each other. That's right. So there's a battle going on. But especially if you want to really get into the prayer and start thinking. So it's hard, but there's another, it's not just hard. There's an intrinsic battle going on over here is because when someone is dominating the way he's supposed to and comes to a very clear understanding that God is the power in the universe and he's the source of all blessing and all reality and therefore I should dedicate my life to serving him and get closer to him. At the end of davening, I should be in a place, if I daven correctly, I should be in a place 
where I can donate my day completely to God and not even feel that I donated it. Because I realize that God is the only reality. I don't mean that it, and I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to have to go make a living. I'm going to go make a living. But even in that, I'm going to do it because this is the way I can serve Hashem through the money. Because God is in the top, in, in the, Hashem is in the, is in the forefront of my consciousness and my awareness. Problem is, there's a part within us called the animal egotistical soul, self-centered. It's not interested in purpose, not interested in mission. It just wants to have a donut. That's <laughs> all it wants. And other pleasure. So what has to happen during davening is that, now, one, and the, the real power of davening is that one soul has to convince the other soul. Which means our godly higher self has to develop a, a, an understanding, an appreciation, an identification, that's most what it is, an identification with the truth in creation till it begins to convince the, the part of us that is so materialistic and earthy and attached to the thing. To, that it too should realize that, that true meaning in life and what is really, really deserving of attention is something is, is Hashem and holiness. So that, that back, that's what it says, Vahaftas Hashem Elokecha. You should love God your God, with all of your heart. And the sages say, with both your inclinations. That the ultimate desire is not just that you should reveal your soul. We all have a potential to love God. Revealing our soul is one thing. The, the, the main purpose over here is that our soul should convince our animal inside of us that spirituality and holiness and connecting to God and doing a mitzvah is worth more than all the millions of dollars and all the pleasures that you can have and all that other stuff. Because it's all like empty and, 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 and vanity and there's nothing to it. So the neshama has to, has to convince that's like two people, that, but how do you accomplish it? It's you have to have a conversation. And that's what happens during davening. You begin to meditate and you want to, you want to think about creation. And you, you think very deeply how things can't exist on their own. Without the word of God constantly creating it and making it every second. That's, according to Hasidut, that's what happens when we daven, when we say, Va'at baruch sha'amar olam. Blessed is you that God, you have spoken and the world came into existence. Imagine stopping on that for 15 minutes and thinking just that thought. How everything I see, the blue sky, the trees, the earth behind me, the house that I live in, the car that I drive, the clouds, everything I see, touch, everything I've ever experienced in my life, everything, my entire reality, is at this very moment being spoken into existence from absolute nothingness. And there's a power bringing. And I don't just hear that for a second and then think about something else. I think about that for a very long time. And I, what, I really, what I'm really doing is I'm trying to show and, and reveal to the other part of me that doesn't want to recognize that, that that's true. It really, really is true. But, right? And there's, there's no reality other than God's truth that is in everything. And therefore I should dedicate myself to, to Hashem. There is a... Oh. <laughs> Good. That's I love that. That's a good question. So Hasidim and the way a real Hasidic prayer involves that you're not trying to keep up with the Chaz. You put your talit over your head, you close your eyes, and you get lost for half an hour. And on one verse, later you'll catch up fast. But for now, you just lose yourself in the words, in it, and you're in a deep. In Hasidic prayer is meditative prayer. It involves deep meditations. And the process is what the Zohar is talking about. That's a bloody war 
because there's a part of it that it gets very uncomfortable by you suggesting that. Because it means that what? That, the, that, that party time is over. And I got to live a higher life with higher intentions. So it struggles and it tries to fight and tries to argue its argument and say, what are you taking away? What are you telling me that there's no validity, there's no, there's no meaning to a life without it? I think it's really good. I think it's good to have a lot of money and, 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 and have a good time and, and, you know, and, and, and just eat a lot, you know, enjoy the, all, the, all the pleasures of life. And, and, and it's back and forth. It's like a person having a debate, one with the other. That's called war. It's not a physical battle, but it's a battle. Like when two people are debating, it's, it's a real war going on. That's during davening. That's a rectification. In or, that, but then there's another type, type of, of um, purification that happens. When you're studying Torah, you're also doing a rectification and separating good and bad in the world. You're refining things. You're changing things. But how do you do it? When you study a subject... Let's say you're learning the laws of kosher. And you're studying, and the Gemara says, and the Talmud says, or the Halacha says, that this thing is kosher meat. And this meat is non-kosher meat. What you're really doing is, you're causing certain realities in this world to become clear. Things are mushed together. You are defining now things that you don't even know are related to the meat that you're talking about. The art, you think the Halacha is just talking about a piece of meat. It's really talking about uh, certain things in, this, in, in, in the world that is being enlivened by God. And by you saying it's not kosher, what you're really saying is that that thing should be separated and disconnected. So you're weakening the unholiness and you're strengthening the holy in the world by saying this is kosher, this is not kosher. You're causing clarity and purification. Now here, oh, but here you're not fighting. You're not arguing with anything. You're just making a statement. By you proclaiming God's what Hashem says is kosher and not kosher, pure or impure, um, 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 guilty or innocent. By, by applying these ideas, we're actually having powerful repercussions on the world. We're actually causing it. You know what's going to happen eventually? You don't realize it. That when you, yeshiva boys study in yeshiva, they cause certain trends of, in society where people begin to reject certain things as no good. And the world becomes more consistent with Torah and mitzvahs. Even though people, we don't realize how it is. Because what was acceptable, certain behaviors that were acceptable 300 years ago are not acceptable today. Right? And where did that happen? That happened because of the extra 300 years of Torah study that has brought clarity in, 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 in even though you wonder why, what's the connection? The answer is, when we are learning these things, we are impacting the world, and where as we impact the world, we impact thinking patterns and people's ideas, and slowly but surely we change. But it's not in a manner of an argument because we're not arguing with anybody. We're just making statements, and that is bringing clarity. So that's called Torah study. Is called what? The difference is by prayer, you're arguing and you're fighting it out, and you're doing a rectification and a purification. By rejecting and saying, this is not good, this is empty, hollow, I shouldn't be, this is sinful, I shouldn't do this, I should direct, I should do some. I should utilize my life and my time that I'm alive or whatever for good things and positive things. So what you're doing is you're, 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 you're separating. And when you're learning Torah, you're also doing a separation. But one of them in, involves more effort in the change. And the other one, it's not like Torah study doesn't involve effort. It involves a lot of effort. But not an effort in terms of wrestling with something dark and, 
and, and, and changing it because you're not trying to convince anybody. You just, you yourself are coming to an understanding of what's right and wrong and making that statement. So that's a different kind of a rectification. However, even though you don't have to wrestle with the enemy, you're still entering into the world of the enemy. The mere fact that we are studying, discussing which insect um, gives impurity. And if the mouse fell on the side of the cup, it, the dead mouse, it makes it impure. But if it fell over here and it's not touching or so, it is pure. So even though you're not actually arguing with anybody, you're just stating the word of God, what God wants, and figuring it out. But the Torah that you're studying at least is dealing with these impure elements. You'll learn, Torah a lot of times deals with very, very ugly realities. It deals with the laws of a thief, and it leaves the laws of a murderer, and it deals with laws of extreme perversion, of all kinds of things. Torah, Torah gets into the nook of cranny of every crevice of life, some of them very unpleasant. And, because the point of it is, to do a purification, to separate. So it's similar to what we said before, the king, even though he doesn't have to fight, but he at least has to come down into the territory of the he has to descend to the territory of the enemy and over there make a statement. But then we said that's not, that's not the real tranquility. What's the ultimate tranquility? When you're not even dealing with it, with the and it automatically your light is too, the, the, the light that you are that you're shining is so strong that inevitably on its own, without even dealing with it, the, 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 the negative dissipates and runs away. Where do you have something like that? In Torah itself, there is the higher part of Torah, which is called the esoteric internal chasidut dimension of Torah. Kabbalah, chasidut, the primius of Torah. This part of Torah doesn't even deal with the worldly, with the darkness of the world. It's not, it's not discussing that. You're learning certain elements about God. You're learning about this sphera, this attribute, and that attribute. Integrate. You're completely immersed in the, in the higher realms of existence. And by learning that, you draw down so much light that negativity and unholiness on its own. Do you know I mean? Do you have any idea? I know we're going to sound really strange now, but it, I'm going to say it anyways. Do you have any idea how many klipot we kill over here every Thursday night in this city? Boom. Chopping them up. Every night, every Thursday night, four hours of intense chasidus. Kuti Torah, Torah Ar. The Abish does a reason why he planted us right over here in the middle of West Hollywood. There's a reason for that. There's a deep battle going on. And by us learning over here, Mondays, and this creates, this lands, and it's Panimia Sator. But in a manner that we don't have to battle it. It's just by the mere bringing of this light, in, on its own, the Klippa falls. That's like Shlomo Melech. He doesn't have to go down to fight it. He stays in his place and on own it. That's what he's explaining over here. Let's read it inside. Like it's understood, through the bitter of Torah, the Biklalis in general we say, even the rectification that happens through the revealed, extroteric, I think it's called, part of the Torah, is in a manner of what? Tranquility. Why? Since the bitter is not in a manner where you have to exert effort. Through this that you learn in Torah, 
Shadavar zam mutter. This thing is permissible. The davar zam asar, and this thing is prohibited. Things become clear in the world. The more people learn Torah, we create clarity in the world. I want to tell you something. If you or I or anybody alive today would go back a thousand years ago and see and live amongst people, we wouldn't survive today. We, could, we would be horrified. We'd be horrified by the by the approach of people to life and the ability of what people were capable of doing in harming others. Now also you have certain, you know, you don't want to by mistake go off the road in Yemen and end up whatever. But these are just pockets. You don't have that kind of fear generally around the globe unless they're being infiltrated by those guys. But generally it's, it's a whole different story. Most of humanity has certain standards and certain decencies I mean, there's always a criminal here and there. We're not, we're not talking about that, but it's not the regular. But a thousand years ago, it was regular for people to do all kinds of uh, atrocities and all kinds of things. Now, they, they, many of them refrain because they're scared of the government. But the essential, uh, the essential person had, because there was still confusion, the, the, the human being had so much good and bad mixed into him. The process of, of history has purified, purified, making... The world is moving towards a better world in a very big way. It's moving. All of this, we have to realize, comes about thousands of years of Torah study in which sometimes we know the relationship when we're saying something is right or wrong, but sometimes it seems like we're talking about which animal is kosher, which part of the animal is kosher, and if I slaughter the animal like this, it's good. But these things somehow or another are tied to various different forces within the world. And when you just bring clarity and define things, it eventually will make its way into the stream of consciousness of human beings and make a shift that people start thinking in different ways. Thousands of years of Torah study, for sure. That's huge impact. That's, that's what Hasidus says. So people usually blame it. People, even, even people who are, are acknowledging what I'm saying, they'll blame it and they'll say it has to do with the fact, they'll say the cause is due to the fact it's Judeo-Christian morals that kind of were uh, this and that and went, went out into the world and, and we Jews have influenced. But then you're talking more of the influence that's coming about direct communication. People have done business, people have done more interaction and therefore certain mentalities have rubbed off. I'm talking on a much deeper level, on a pre-conscious level. Certain refinements are being done on deep, deep levels. We're thinning out the forces, we're destroying and nullifying the forces that are the causes of all these criminal activity and all these selfish uh, ways of, of life where you think that you can, you know, that you know, we abolished slavery, we abolished... You know, people, the way people treated women, the way people... I mean, all these things, people are so different today. The whole thing. And all of that had to do with this sensitivities that come from the world as a result of the klippa being, being nullified. And who nullifies the klippa? Thousands of years of Torah study in the yeshivot across the world purified the atmosphere. That's what I'm talking about. It purified the atmosphere and changed the trend of people thinking. 
in a manner that we didn't have to argue. We didn't have to debate. We have to get onto a debate and argue. We just stated whatever we stated and automatically things changed. You didn't see this change, but after thousands of years, we look back and we see the difference of how far we've come. Um, the tefillah, so again, the loika habira the tefillah, and it's not like the rectification that happens during davening. I turned over the page. This is through the nefesh alikis, the godly soul. Mislabeshes has to enclose itself, the nefesh Bahamas and the animal soul, and fight it out, as we spoke earlier. Therefore, even the birur, the rectification that happens through the studying of the Torah law, the body of the Torah, the revealed part of the Torah, nikra birur bederech menucha, it's called a rectification in a manner of tranquility. But more specifically, since after everything is said and done, how are we, through the revealed part of the Torah, how are we fixing something? The Torah is still descending into the home or into the place of that which needs to be fixed in order to fix it. The Torah is actually getting into the, into the, into the pipes in order to unclog them. The Torah is going to talk. The Torah is God's will. What, what, what is God's will doing talking about roaches? Do you realize there is a lot of halachas that talk about which kind of roaches are tamay or not? Why is the Torah busy talking about that? And the answer is because in order to fix uh, the world, we need to deal with everything. The Torah gets its hands dirty, so to speak, to go down and to sort things out. She descends, and she encloses herself. In the physical things in which it needs to fix. This is an idea of a war. Why? Because it's similar to the idea that the king needs to leave his comfort of his palace and of his place, and he needs to travel to the place where there are those who are defying him, and over there, squash the revolt, put down the revolt by him coming there, even if he doesn't have to fire even one, 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 uh, one bullet. The mere fact that he had to go there. The king has to go out from his place. And he goes to the place of the enemy. The true, real Indian of a birer, of a rectification in a peaceful, tranquil way, who is only when we're doing a rectification through the innermost of the Torah, which is when you're studying Hasidut, when you're studying Kabbalah and things like that, where you're learning, and you're not at all dealing with the, with the negative stuff. You're dealing with godly things, but because the holiness that you're bringing in is so strong that they get blinded by the light and they run. They're scared on their own. They dissipate on their own. And not only that, you actually pull many people, you cause an attraction to holiness, even from people that are far. For Yash we can say, Shachilik ben kuma Hashem sha'amar now we can say we go on to Sif test. The difference between the Kuma Hashem Sha'omar Moshe to the Kuma Hashem Sha'omar David to the Kuma Hashem that David says. Now he's adding another idea. The difference between the two bureaus based on till now we were discussing the method. Hear, hear very closely. Till now we were discussing the method of how we fix it. How are we accomplishing this purification? 
in Shlomo Melech's day, we're saying like this, in Moshe Rabbeinu's days, the method required effort, if not total effort, but at least somewhat of an effort, to actually travel into the enemy territory to fix it. And in Shlomo Melech's, it came effortlessly. Stayed in his place, and his light just spread, and, had, and it did what it needed to do. Now he's going to explain that the difference between the two is not only in, it's a very deep idea that he's going to explain now, is not only in the effort, meaning in the, in the, in the um, sorry, it's not only in the method of how, you, how are you accomplishing the fixing, but it's also in the degree of how well you accomplish this fix. How deep the purification impacted the one that is purified. We're going to see that Shlomo Melech's purification, notwithstanding the fact that he did it with a long distance purification, he did it from far, yet the purification was far more thorough than the purification that happened during Moshe. So the difference is not only in the method, the difference is also in the result of the purification. How strong is this? You see when Moshe Rabbeinu says, Kuma Hashem, get up God. Now, we can't blame Moshe that he didn't finish the job. He got the toughest job. He was dealing with the klipot when they were still super powerful. See, by the time Shlomo Melech came already, they, were, they, they had already lost 50% of their power from Moshe. So now he's dealing with a much weaker klipot to begin with. The real battles were done by the first generations. They had a lot to fight. The deep spiritual battles. Fine, we're just dealing with the leftovers. So now, but... Um, uh, but, but uh, Yep, because we are where we are. That's right. Where they've done all the hard work already. We just have to do the last bits. In any case, um, oh, you see it in Moshe Rabbeinu's words. He says, "Kuma Hashem, get up, God. May your enemies be scattered." Now, when you scatter your enemies, they're still there. They're just scattered. Meaning, they're not gathered together to fight. They're scattered. They flee, those who hate you. But they're fleeing, but somewhere they ran to. So they ran into what? So they went into hibernation. They go into hiding. They go into hiding, and they'll uh, disappear kind of from, they'll disappear from the public eye, and there won't be any visibility of them. But you know, they might come back another time. You know, they can always come back because they're. Shlomo Melech his destruction of the klipa was far more thorough. It doesn't say over there, Vayafutsu. It doesn't say, the truth is, he doesn't prove that by Shlomo HaMelech it says that they were eliminated completely. But it doesn't say the same thing like it says by Moshe. By Moshe it says, Vayafutsu, they will scatter. Which is showing that there's, some, there's more left over than by Shlomo. Let's see why. is in two things. Number one, in the method that is being used. Because the rectification that came through the Oren of the Mishkan, was in a manner of war. That you should scatter, but then we're calling Oivecha, they're still your enemies afterwards. That means even after they scatter, they're still your enemies. They will escape, those who hate you. There are those that are opposing. Your enemies, those who hate you. We have to fight them. But it's only that what? And now they're not congregating to fight because they're scared. 
but the rectification and purification that happened in Shloima, and particularly through the revelation, not through Shloima. Remember, in Shloima itself, we said there's two levels. Shloma Melech initially, and then Shloma Melech when he built the base of Megdash. Hoya Bederech Menucha was in a manner of Menucha. Kuma Shem Lemnucha Secha, Kanal Barucha. No, I'm sorry. I, I messed up over here. I was already explaining that there's still remaining enemies. No, 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 no. He's saying, in addition to the method, in which, by Shlomo HaMelech, what? The method was, I'm sorry, in Moshe Rabbeinu it was, there was an enemy that you have to defeat. In Shlomo HaMelech, there was just calmness. There was no, no sense of an enemy. So that means there was no effort. The other difference is, Gam Barbir Atzmo. The second thing is also in the, in the rectification itself. And as we said earlier, how thorough and how deep is this rectification? This that by Moshe Rabbeinu it says, "Vayafutsu v'yanusu misanechahu lefishe gamla acharei abirur." Even after the refinement, al yedei nesias aaron b'midbar through the aaron traveling in the midbar, nishar adayin menagdim. The menagdim are still there. Oivecha misanecha, they're still there. Ela shahoye ba'ofen liyafutsu v'yanusu. They're in a scattered state. They're they're on the run, but they still exist. The Indian, but but by Shlomo Melech it's not that way. The Indian who and the idea is the bebiter shebederech memoch. So now he's going to introduce an an idea, which is called a new terminology, but it's kind of similar to what we were speaking about before. There is two types of birer. One of them is called milmaila lamata from from up down, and the other one is called from down up. What does that mean? It's similar to the difference between the rectification that happens in prayer and the rectification that happens through Torah. What, Torah is considered a rectification from up down. You're standing above that which you're refining. And you're just, you're just saying, this way, that way. This is good, this is bad. From the bottom up means that you're actually creeping into the, into the innards of that which is you're refining it and trying to convert it from the inside which is what you're doing in prayer. To understand a little bit better the difference between the two, I'll give an example. There is a trial. And when there is a trial, there is, right, a trial being someone, someone is, someone is uh, accused, the accuser is, the, the accused is on trial, and then there is, there is the prosecutor, and there is the, there is the, the, uh, uh, there is the uh, attorneys, right? the lawyers, the advocates. Okay, so you got the, and they're both going to argue. So the prosecutor will give their arguments for one side, and then the lawyer is going to, and the defender, defense attorney is going to defend them. And there's going to be arguments back and forth and back and forth. Hopefully, let's say, you know, we're siding with kindness, let's say, with goodness. We want the person to be vindicated and come out. So there's, now the possibility is being accused. So the way this is being fixed is that the, it's not like the, the defense attorney comes in and just says his and goodbye. It doesn't work that way. The defense, it's back and forth. The defense has to actually be quiet and listen to the arguments and the fierce accusations coming from the prosecutor. And he has to listen, and he has to listen. Not only that, he has to process all those arguments. For a while, almost allow himself 
the defense attorney, to become convinced by these arguments, because that's the only way you can really hear it. What is he really saying? And once I hear all the evidence and all the arguments for this, now I'm going to refute them. So now I need to go and add my arguments. Argument after argument after argument. And one by one, I'm knocking off all these reasons in which he, the, 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 the prosecutor has laid out a case in order to, for guilt. And I have to show that a person is innocent. Okay? That's called momata lamayla. means you had to, you, you needed to, as, as we spoke before, it's a wrestling. It's like a physical argument. Umayla Lamata is it used to be in a, in a court, it used to be the situation used to be as follows. The person was put on trial. Many times it was kind of in the king's court. If it was an important case, it was in the king's court. And here was the rule. The rule was when the king would walk into, into the courtroom, the face of the king radiated light and goodness. The king is a benevolent king, a king of kindness. And just the mere fact that he walked into the into the into the into the, the and the king wants life and goodness, so all all arguments that are supporting or trying calling for the opposite of punishment, the harshness, or God forbid, uh, the opposite of life, is something that automatically by the king coming in, the prosecutor is silent. And the defendant is free just because the king, it's almost like the king gives him a pardon. But it's it, the, way, the way the Zohar says is, when you see the face of the king, there's life. Because the king is all about life. And he exude, and exudes light, life. So when the king's walking in, this kind of a, a, this kind of an override over the prosecutor is not an override where what? Where you got where the king even listened to the prosecutor, didn't consider the prosecutor. He completely cancels him. He cancels the prosecutor completely. It's almost like if the prosecutor is in the midst of the heat of the argument and he's shouting and he's like really getting into it, he's saying, This guy is a murderer, he wants to like really, really go hooked up. Suddenly when the king walks in, he becomes ashamed with his accusations. Why? Because the king is so much about life. Obviously, we're looking at kings over here, the way the kings ought to be in the days of Mashiach. You imagine a king. Look about kings the way they are. You know, they were, they were the opposite kind of kings. Who, you know, if they walked into a trial and so on and this, they had, uh, they were, they 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 were uh, uh, psychopaths and, and, and whatever and 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 actually used the opportunity to, to to punish the person in the most inhumane, cruel ways just because. You know, that gave them a thrill. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone deserving to be a king who's all about s- supporting his country and giving light. I'm not getting into the argument now that sometimes a criminal needs to be punished. So I'm not getting involved in that. I'm talking about the essential idea that the king is now coming in and the king is all about life. Suddenly, the, the prosecutor is silenced just because the king walked in. Not only that, he's embarrassed with the fact that he even, that he even suggested that there should be punishment and harshness because there's so much goodness now flowing, so much kindness, and, and all of that, it dissipates. So the way the prosecutor's arguments were eliminated was not through an argument and through the debate, but he was completely over, he was canceled, he was vetoed, so to speak, by the king's presence. 
That's called a birer, a rectification, kind of. But something from above came down. But, you understand, there is a, there is a quality to each one. The quality of the beer of the argument, the lawyer and the prosecutor as they argued it out, is that the, 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 the prosecutor, if the arguments of the defense attorney was very, very strong and very, very clear, to your point that, he, that he's able to convince that you, have, that you have no evidence that this guy ever did it, to the point that even the prosecutor, even the DA, even the district attorney realizes that, you know what, he poked so many holes in it that... So he himself, as he is, now is, 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 has to agree. I have a lot of times cases end and this guy thinks he's right and he thinks he's right. I'm talking about in a case where one overpowered the other. And it was clear that he has shown that, this, that the accusation was false or the accusation is, doesn't hold out. There is not enough evidence to prove anything. So now the, the, the prosecutor himself from within his own mind, has to agree to the truth of what the, t- the defense attorney said. In the case where the king came, even though the king nullified him completely and shut him up 1,000%, that doesn't mean that he's walking out out in the court and think he was wrong. He knows he had a case. He knows this guy was guilty. He knows it should have been so-and-so. What can he do? It was bad luck. <laughs> it just happened to be that the that the king happened to decide to take a stroll, and the king likes life, and whenever whoever sees the king is automatically pardoned, and fine, especially if the king is in a happy mood, and that's it, fine, it's over. So it's not like he, deep inside, has changed. It's just that why he was obliterated at the time being. Hold on. Oh, that's right. It says the same thing. It says that if we're lucky... Rosh Hashanah, it says, by the way, I, once saw, I saw this this year from Rav Pinchas of Karitz. Rav Pinchas of Karitz is, says that all you want to do in Rosh Hashanah is to get God to look at you. Because the moment God would look at you in Rosh Hashanah, you're automatically pardoned from everything. And how do you get God to look at you? So he's describing over there that that's where we daven so much in Rosh Hashanah. And you find that people have different points of davening with their hearts open up. This person, this person, and some person during the Tekiah Shofar, one person during the Kriya Satora, one person during the, the Haftora, the other person during the Shachris, the other one in the Sanatokia, this one through a happy song, this one through a deep soul cleansing, weeping. Everybody in a different place, everybody in a different thing, because what wherever their neshama suddenly has that window where God is looking at them, where they're looking at God and God is looking at them. And at that moment, you're cleaned from everything. Because when the king looks, he says something like that. So the king has walked in. The fact that you're conscious of something very big taking place, something hits you very strongly and deeply, it's a very powerful thing if that happens in Rosh Hashanah. At some point, we never know where it's going to happen. And it happens to everybody in different things. In different parts, fine. What? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Let's go back. The person that was in trial. Let's let's let, let's try to paint the thing because I know if it, it feels hard to accept if we're dealing with someone who murdered someone and we don't like the fact that he's off the hook. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in a case where you had a nice Jewish guy. 
who was uh, really a good person, a kind person, a very nice thing. He ran into problems with the government, maybe something with his taxes or something. And, uh, and, this, and now, he's being in, now he's being held in trial for some serious offense, and he can end up in very big trouble if they decide to throw the book at him. And he's on trial, right? So we want him to get out, okay? There's two ways that he will get out, okay? Either he will get out because we can convince the prosecutor that the charges are false, or that the charges are not convincing enough, or whatever reason, the crime is not as big as he's making it to be. Or you have a situation where you're lucky that the king will pardon him because the king walks in and that's it. You know what I'm saying? So what are the qualities of each one? Let's understand the qualities and the... The quality of arguing it out is that you're actually changing the, 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 the opinion of your opponent. Then later, when you'll go to the very prosecutor himself and you'll ask him, what do you think about the case? He would say, I have to admit that I didn't have a case. If he's an honest, decent person, you know what, he beat me. This defense attorney is so good, he blew holes in my entire case and he beat me. There might be, and he might think, you know, I, I probably was right in this, I was probably in that, but overall, he, he, he defeated me, right? So he himself agrees with it. If he was canceled, it's not about, it's just that he was, he was basically just silenced. He was completely, his entire existence as being a prosecutor was now eliminated. Because when the king is here, he doesn't want to hear any prosecutions. Get out of here, you know? But, but, but if I meet him afterwards, once the king is away and he's back to himself, and when I say he became nullified, it's not only that no one else will listen to him, he himself loses himself as if he's like knocked out. He can't even breathe. The king walked in and he knows that he's, his entire existence is antithetical to what the king represents. And that is life and goodness for people. Everybody comes to the king to get something good. And he's standing over here and trying to get this guy into misery, into pain. So therefore he becomes so nullified by the king's presence that fine. Oh, right. But if you, that's because he's been canceled. But... If you speak to him essentially, he still has all the beliefs that he had before, that the guy deserves so and so and so and so. So um, there is a quality in fixing something from the bottom up as opposed to fixing something from the top. But on the other hand, there is a quality in fixing something from the top. In terms of how strong did we nullify the, the other side, you see? When there's a prosecutor and a, and, a, and, a, and a defense attorney arguing it out, even if the defense attorney proves to him that this is so-and-so, and even if the prosecutor is going to admit, but he still, even when he's admitting, says, you know what, there is a 20% chance that the guy is guilty. In other words, he's still holding on. There is certain aspects of it that are guilty. You haven't nullified it completely through and through and through. There is still some opposition there. It's just not enough so in general you converted him, but the little bit that you didn't convert still stays. Understand what I'm saying? There's still in his mind some aspects. Maybe he's waiting for more evidence to happen. Right now he can't, doesn't have a case. But maybe they'll like, uh, you know, with, with Clinton's emails, maybe tomorrow something else will come out. Maybe we'll have something tomorrow. Maybe we'll have the... It's still there, even though right now, you know, Comey says, I can't, I can't prosecute. I don't have enough evidence to prosecute. We don't know. Well, we might reopen the investigation because there's something there. When we're dealing with, however, with the king shining, when the king walking in on the prosecutor, and the king decided life, it's over. It's over. There's nothing left to talk about because the entire neg- um, accusation has been destroyed completely. Not by an argument, just 
broken because the king pardoned. Because the king is there. So you realize, here there is a quality in transformation. That you've actually affected the person to change his mind. Here the quality is that the degree in which you nullified it, you nullified completely. The lacking of it is, you nullified them by canceling them, not by transforming them. But you canceled. But what you canceled? There isn't even one shred left over of negative. At least during the time that the king is still standing in the room, the guy is knocked out completely. Nothing. There is no, there is no energy in his argument. He can't, even, he can't even argue. Completely out. So each one has a quality. So we're going to see how this applies to um, what we're learning over here. Um, uh, hold on. The Indian who? The Indian who and the idea is. That in this birur that's happening from up down, that the the elyon, the one above, is not enclosing himself in the tachto. And the way the one below is becoming rectified, is through the light coming from above, like by Shlomo Melech. Right? The light is coming from above. This that the one below is not in opposition. It doesn't involve his own metzias. Ruts in his own desire. Seichel, his own intelligence. Because the reason why he's not opposing, as we said before, with a king walking in, is not because he himself thinks it ought to be that way. It's because he was not, because you canceled him completely. You are so powerful and he's so small that compared to him, you become bung. On the contrary. Because it is shining upon him so much light. You exposed, you brought the king in. You brought someone so powerful in whom is battle He becomes completely battle from his metzias. Not that his metzias has changed. He has become obliterated as if he doesn't exist. You didn't change him. You nullified him. But on the other hand, how much did you nullify him? Completely. Uh, the, Oh, so now, okay. So this is, but this leaves you with what? This, so this does like this. So now he's going to develop a very, very, very important idea. And that is that since when you're fixing something from above, not by entering below to fix it, but you stay above and fix it from above, and, and then what is the consequence of that? You're not transforming you are obliterating, right? That's the idea. Then, he, he, this is very important, then you better make sure that the obliteration is absolute. Because if it's 90% obliteration, and you're lacking the fact that you never transformed that person, you're leaving 10% of something that, can, that, is, still, that is still in opposition. Basically, it's not a thorough job. You see, if the way you rectified it is by going down and changing it, then what? Then you've converted it. But here you didn't convert. Here what you did was you overpowered. So if you fully overpowered, 
Gewaldig. If you're not fully overpowering, so therefore, where, where, where's he going with this? What he's saying is like this. Moshe Rabbeinu also overpowered the Klippa. He came in with the Midbar, with the thing. He overpowered. But the overpowering that Moshe Rabbeinu, he wasn't working things out. For, as we said before, he wasn't wrestling with the snakes. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't arguing with every snake and scorpion or every representative of what they represented, why God is real and why he's fake. He didn't even argue. He was just the main traveler. But on the, the problem, however, was, and on the one hand, he's not changing, but on the other hand, the mere fact that Moshe has to come there to destroy the snakes and the scorpions is an indication that the obliteration is not complete. Why is it not complete? Because, because, let's see why. Because if I have to come to your place to neutralize you, if I have to come to your place to, to um, silence you, is a sign, but I can't do it, and and, and, is a sign that you have some kind of importance in my eyes, that I have to come there. You're significant in my eyes. If you're significant, meaning if, I don't mean me, I'm not talking in concept. If the king has to go to squash the rebellion, means that whoever is rebelling has some, has some value, has some chashivas, has some importance, because it required the king, it better be, it's very important, the fact that the king had to get up from his place and travel there, is a sign that the one that needs to be fixed over here or put into his place has somewhat of significance and importance in the eyes of the king. And that's why he needs to be put into his place. The fact that the king is giving him some importance, so even when the king comes, you have a big thing being faced by a small thing. So even though the big thing is overpowering the small thing, the small thing is still, is still something. The mere fact that the king had to address it is a sign that in the even, from both from the eyes of the king and from the eyes of whatever, you had to come to me. I, I'm, so, I'm strong enough to make you, to aggravate you so much as come to me. I'm a somebody too. So even though I'm very, very overwhelmed by you coming over here, I don't melt completely. I still remain quiet. I'll run into my cave. <laughs> but you can't, you're not destroying me completely. Because the mere fact that you showed that you have to come to deal with me, I've already, you know, I've already, I've, I've already, I've already pushed your buttons, so to speak, is a sign that I have some, some, some power. And therefore your power, you versus me, is not a complete... But if the king doesn't have to even go out from his place and just his mere power, that means is so powerful. So then those entities that are rebelling against him, or those that are, are utterly nothing in his eyes, they're just like, like what is it? It's, it's absolutely meaningless, insignificant, nobodies. That kind of distance between a true, between a true greatness and someone that is a nobody when that, is, when that shines upon the nobody, what does it do to the nobody? It nullifies the nobody to really be, really, 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 really be a nobody. Because he knows, if you at least have to come down to him and deal with me, it's with, it's, it's with parents and teachers and all the time you have this. If the kid can get 
it can work you up. You already lost half the battle. Because the mere fact that you lost your cool and they got to you, I mean, that's control. He's control. Even if you're going to shut him up <laughs> through whatever it is that you're going to do and you're going to win the battle, you've lost half of it because you've, there's empowerment in the fact that he was able to get to you. Oh, sometimes you have the... the uh, uh, you have you have the principle, you know, and the principle has to come walking. I'll give you an example, perfect example. The fact that the principal has to walk into the classroom to silence the rebellion, so to speak, and all kids get scared, is a sign of a certain weakness. It's not real powerful control. Why? Because they have to come. So the kids feel a little in control. Even though they're nullified. But they're not completely blasted by his. So the teacher is like the teacher, the one who has to argue. Argues. Kid argues this. Principal doesn't argue. Just comes in. Quiet. Stop it. I'm not arguing with you. This is the way it is. Fine. Finished. But then there's another situation. There's a principal that never has to go into any classroom. The mere fact that he's in the building, that he's there... You know, and you'll see, like that, when the principal is out of town, eh, there's a little, there's looseness in the school, because the principal is out of town. The assistant principal, okay, that's already a different story. But the principal is out of town, so that kind of power, with the mere fact that the principal is there, he's, he's there, his power is so complete that people don't even think of it because the cancellation that they're canceled to him is complete, because the kids feel like a nobody in the presence of his power. To a little kid. He's like, whoa, the principal is huge. Like Rabbi Burstein in Besiako. Doesn't even have to go anywhere. It's like, whoa. All-powerful principal. I always admire that, how he does that. But in any case, um, the, the, that's like a, 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 a strength, right? So that's what he's saying over here. If, if, See, and it, what he's pointing out over here is, I'm just going to say one thing. The principal that has to walk into the classroom to squash the rebellion or the thing, the thing that's going on is in a sense worse off than the teacher who had to call the kid out and argue with him until he convinced him to sit down. Because the teacher who walked out of the classroom and argued it out, at least at the end he got the kid, kid to understand and appreciate and he's changed. The principal who walked in did not accomplish that because he's silencing things by canceling the student, not by changing the student. And this cancellation is not a complete cancellation because the mere fact that he had to come to the student, the student feels like I'm a somebody, that you have to come all the way from your office. You're sitting here, you know, you have to put down your coffee and whatever it is, and your foot is on the top of the desk. And you have to leave that and come over here, I'm a somebody too. Now I'm scared of you because you're coming in over here, but, but you realize you didn't cancel but, the te- but if the principal doesn't have to at all move from his office, and yet all the kids, because he's merely the fact that he's there, oh, that shows that we're dealing with over here a t- two entities where one is utterly insignificant to the other. To the other. And therefore, the cancellation of the opposition is complete. And that's what he's saying, the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and Shlomo we said that because Shlomo Moshe had to go out to fight, 
What happened in the end? The enemy is vayafutsu. It's still there. It's just right now. It's not ganging up. It's running. But there's still epis because Moshe Rabbe, the, the godliness that was revealed at that time was the, the mere fact that God has to be busy now running after, chasing after snakes and scorpions, meaning is a sign that this, we're dealing with a level of the divine where, where elements of this world have epis hachashivas. And therefore, even when he appears to them, he doesn't nullify them completely. But, but Shlomo Melech, the level of godliness that was revealed, is one that is higher than the world completely. And as we're going to see soon, it's the level of wealth. Ashira's wealth. Which wealth means it's above having any relationship to the creation. It's not something that the world needs. It's infinitely above the creation. That revelation, what does it do to, the, to, to, to any possible opposer? Nullified completely. So it's not just in the manner, it's also in the consequence. How deep was that elimination of evil as a result of, Mo- of Shleim HaMelech and as a result of Moshe Rabbeinu? So, let's read it again. He has to come to him. The one that's becoming fixed. This is proving. The one below has some importance. It's not possible that just because he is revealing himself, the other one should become bottled because he, his metzius of the Elion, of the one above, leaves room, is giving some credence to, the, to this, uh, to this um, rebel. And since it also has the second advantage, that what? That you haven't transformed him. You're just silencing him. And not in a manner of... Of, 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 of converting it by and on the other hand the bittel that comes through it is not a thorough bittel you don't have the quality of transforming and the bittel the only thing you're doing is you're using this blasting power to break him but you're not but your breaking power is not strong enough to, to so therefore even after you've done your fixing Nishar Adayim Behelim, he remains quietly in a concealed way, Metzios the Menagid, the Metzios, the existence of the opposer. Oivecha Misanecha, your enemies are still there. Nevertheless, they're neutralized, they're weaker. It's not like, you know, when the principal walked into the room, the kid is not gonna, you know, the rest of the day he's gonna be put into place. He's not gonna wake up, but you know what, maybe in the four weeks from now he might do it again. Since the Tachtoin is not even to this Gilui, he has some Tvisus Makam, but Tvisus Makam means he's still a somebody, but he's still very small. Therefore, also through this revelation, the strength of the, of the, of the Tachtoin gets broken. No, he's not strong. Before, he was, he was full of chutzpah. He was full of fighting. Now, his, 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 um, his, uh, his guts was broken. His, his, his confidence. The confidence of this, of this, of this opposer was, was destroyed. But he's not completely destroyed. Only his confidence. So even though he remains in the... Uh, 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 in a state of his snagdus, he remains in a state of opposition, but it's in a very weak opposition. 
So that's what Moshe Rabbeinu accomplished. We didn't destroy the Klippas, we weakened them tremendously. Masha ain't came about. And you asked me before, what's the difference between exile? Exile has a quality that we're actually entering into the Klippa and convincing them, turning it over, working things out from within. That is one quality. It's like we said before, the teacher calls the kid out and shows him why his behavior is inappropriate. So on the one hand, it's a much weaker approach because I can't just cancel your, 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 your misbehavior. But it has a deeper impact because I'm, I'm, act, I'm actually working with you and convincing you that you yourself should realize why this is, why this is, why this is um, inappropriate or not right and it's not good for you and not be, uh, it's not beneficial and the like. So, yeah, yeah, you got to wrestle him. You got to... Yeah. Is when, when Yaakov is wrestling with the angel of Esau, yeah. Yeah. And, that's right. And, and you won. Yes. Yeah, that's it. The wrestling. Yes, for sure. That's a wrestling. And that actually represents the Jewish people during the time of exile when they're wrestling with the other side. Over here, wherever, however, we're talking about the time of Moshe Rabbeinu when he didn't wrestle. So then, in the, in the time, so what happened to the klipa? It was weakened. It wasn't transformed. It was weakened. By Shlomo Melech, since Kedusha was so powerful that it didn't even pay attention to klipa. And that made klipa, it's like the principal who's so strong doesn't even have to walk into any classroom. It's a fair fact that he's in school and he's not on vacation. He's on vacation, he's not here. But he's here, all kids are behaving. Oh, so Galut has a... No, of course, because by, by Galut, the time of Galut is Hashem, Hashem dimmed his light. So God's light is not strong at all, that people should appreciate it because of that. When the bearer is in a manner of menucha, of rest. This that he remains in his place, the Elyon. And he's not going down at all to the place of the one who needs the fixing. The tachton, the, the one below, doesn't have any, doesn't, it's meaningless. It's nobody, it's nothing. Through this light. So then you actually neutralize him completely. You silence him completely. There's total bitl and total surrender. Now he adds, So we're going to finish this piece over here. Now he wants to add, even in the highest level, there are still two levels. He's, he's, he's cutting, he's going to slice now even now. Meaning, even when you remain in your place, and you don't go down to your enemy, which, which is showing on what? On your complete disregard to the enemy. The enemy is meaningless, there's nobody in your eyes. Which therefore, when, you're, when, you're, when you are now aligning these two, the difference, the, the power... Is, has all the power to cancel the, the other one out completely because you're, 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 you're so nobody that I don't even have to deal with you. So therefore it senses its nothingness in front of this great power, in front of this great, great being. 
even over here, there's possible that what? That even though you don't have to come down to fix me, but, the, but I can still be a somebody in, in, your, in your eyes. He's going to explain that. Let's see. El He's in his place. He's in such a level. Sometimes it's possible that even though I'm not going down to deal with you and I'm staying in my place, it's still possible that you still have some, some, the, 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 one, that, the one that's a possible rebel still has some significance in, in the eyes of the, of the king, let's say. And then in that case, even though he's in a place where he's, he's kind of fixing him from a distance, it's not a complete bitl. What do we mean by that? Let's look in Shlomo Melech's times itself. We have the time when Shlomo Melech built the Beis HaMikdash. And there's the time when Shlomo Melech, when he didn't build the Beis HaMikdash. Yet, even before he built the Beis HaMikdash, he was already influencing, and, and as we said before, he was a man of Menucha. No one was fighting him. What's the difference between these two times? In the first period of Shlomo Melech's times, before he built the Beis HaMikdash, he, yes, he was so powerful that he didn't even have to go down to his enemies. But they, the enemies still had somewhat of an importance of his, in his eyes. They still had, even if it's a tiny bit, and therefore their nullification to him was incomplete. Once he built the base on Mingdash, and the levels of holiness became so much stronger, and his power increased a billion fold, then the, 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 everything that's not godly and spent is zero. It's not even a little ant. It's nothing. And that's when it was completely... It implies in the Mimer, we can add explanation, this that Shlomo was a man of peace, in his days, it says, the moon was full, and which we were connecting that with the idea that in Shlomo Melech's days there was wealth. What are we saying? We are measuring the effect on the world based on how much light is shining in his malchus. So we said earlier, Shlomo Melech is so great because already in the days of Moshe, malchus had gotten back all the tzedakah. She filled. She's comfortable. She got back everything she lost. But what she didn't have was wealth. Shlomo Melech is bringing wealth into Melchus. So we're saying, oh, so now, now we're saying, and that's why there is Menucha. Why was there Menucha? Why wasn't there any opposition against him? Because he was Mamshech, by him there was such affluence. And now we'll understand that better. Ki inyan the Menucha v'shalom. The real true inyan of Menucha and Shalom is ukisham anagid mizbatel betachlis. The, the real, real meaning of Menucha means that that which was once opposing became utterly nullified. If there is the potential that it will come back, if there is even, even if it's quiet, silence, it's not bothering anybody, it's not calling up friends, whatever, it's completely neutralized. But if it's not completely gone, it's not real Menucha, because the king has to worry that what? You never know. If he lets down his guard, what might happen? So it's not real menucha. Real menucha is when I don't have to worry at all because there's no more menagid, there's no more opposition at all. What did we learn in last, in last sif? 
in order for the menaget to be bottled completely, he requires to experience something that is that 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 to that thing he has no beingness at all. He's a total nothing compared to that. That requires the infinite light of God, in which to him all the cre- all of creation is absolutely zero. You see, the light of Hashem, even from Kesser, the chitzoni is the external part of Kesser, is called a very distant mucker source for all the most of the world. If the light is a mucker, it's a source for the world, so that means the Abishter is leaving already room and, and giving importance to the creation already. Even if his light is still infinite, the fact that this is already a beginning of an adaptation to a world means that I'm already considering you. Oh, once the worlds can exist, what comes along with the worlds at the very, 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 very cellar of creation? What comes along? Kalipas. So the Kalipa has somewhat of a metzius, of a some say, he has some little bit of confidence. True, if this light reveals itself, he gets very scared. But it doesn't obliterate him completely. We said earlier. Therefore, in order to obliterate Kalipa completely, completely, you need to have Ashira's wealth. What's Ashira's wealth? Wealth means the light, as we spoke earlier, that doesn't even have whatsoever connection to the world because the light that has connection to the world is considered part of what was once shining in Malchus and was taken away from it. So we have to be talking about something that it's not shaykh, it's called pnimiyotakeser, the pure insof, that to that the worlds are... It's not even, it doesn't even begin to contract itself to the creation. It's pure infinite light. When the world senses that light, what happens to it? It becomes totally bottled completely. And that's why, and that's why that's the ultimate, the real menucha. Because real menucha is only when, when there, is, there isn't even the tiniest bit of opposition left. So remember, it can only come when it is facing something that to it, it is kula kamei before, before it, it is nothing. As long as I am something by you, then I, 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 I have a mitzvah. Um, you need to draw down Atik. Because in the light that has a shaykhis to the world, that has some connection. Even the light of the Soviv Kalam. Keser. Since this light gives epis, gives somewhat of a, of a, of a space for the worlds to exist. And what are the worlds? The world means concealment and blocking God, which from this concealment, this allows for a klipa to exist. Ultimately, once you're already giving a possibility for a concealment, what is going to come from concealment? Eventually. What happens if there's concealment? From a little concealment comes more concealment. More concealment comes more concealment. And eventually, the more, and the more concealment there is, the more, the less God is felt. The less God is felt, the more one feels himself. Eventually, what will eventually happen? You will end up with someone who's the, the, who's, uh, who, uh, who rebels against Hashem. So, habitul da'amenagdem sheba'olam. So, therefore, the bitul al yadei gili yarze enoi bitul betachlas is not an absolute bitul. Vezesh shloima yish menucha. So, therefore, this that shloima rabbe, I mean shloima melech, was a man of menucha. 
and peace was in his time, because in his days, because in his days, it wasn't just a revelation of Keser, which were the five things that Malchus lost, but we brought down even Atik, Ashiras. And when that wealth and that Ashiras was, what? Revealed. In the world, what did that do? To that light, Klip is completely gone. This is all Shleimah Melech. And but above all of this is the Hizgalos of Mashiach Tzadkein. That is called wealth. That is higher even, that is even bigger wealth. I'm sorry, that's called chesed, that's even to a rich man. Which that idea of a chesed that's even to a rich man means not the revelation of the infinite light, but the revelation of the essence of God Himself. Not the light of Hashem, but the essence. And in the next couple of Seifim, he's going to explain what is the advantage of that revelation of the essence over, over this purification. Here, Klip has become so obliterated that they're gone completely. Still, there is something way, way deeper with the revelation of not the light of Hashem, but what he's going to call now, it's called not Atik, but Pnimius Atik. In Atik Yomin itself, there's two levels. There's Atik Yomin, and then there's the Pneumius of Atik, which is the Orin, which is not just the Orin Sof, it's just the Atmos of Orin Sof. Um, I, I, I'm realizing that it's gonna, it's, to finish the mimer today would be too much. But I don't want to finish it at this piece. Because I think if we learn just this one more piece over here, because we're finishing and defining these three levels, then next week uh, it'll be very smooth sailing as we complete. But let's, so let's finish up this last one piece. Of it. It's a deep piece, but I think uh, he's basically, it's a little Kabbalistic. It's not really deep, it's, very, it's a little Kabbalistic. So I, I just want to... He's going to bring the idea that in Etz Chaim it says that Atik Yomen, even though Atik is called... It's like the innermost of the crown. And it's called... It's removed from Yomen, from the days which are the spheros. See, in general, Keser is considered the mediator between God Himself and the spherot. And because spherot attributes are already attributes. They're already definitive elements within, within Hashem. And then there's the Ein Sof. There's God Himself. That's, that's beyond all description. So Kesar serves as a mediator. In Kesar itself, we're saying like this. Every mediator needs to have within himself the two relationship to the two sides that you're mediating. Okay? I always use the example of an interpreter. If you're interpreting, you have to speak both languages to be able to interpret. So if there is a level called Kesar that mediates between the Ein Sof and that mediates between the Ein Sof and what? And the Spheres. It has to have within it. So it says like this. The lower part of Kesser is called the Shoresh for the Spheres. It's, and what is that? That's called Arach Ampin. It's the will that God has that He should emanate Spherot. So the mere fact that it's the, even though when you want something, you're not yet in the shape of what you want. It's still you want is still higher than any than any than any koach, 
But the fact that you want it means already you are stepping out of yourself to want. You want this or you want that. So the Erech the, Ampen the is considered the source of the spheres. The Atik Yomen is the part of the, of the Ketzer that's representing not the spherot, but it's representing the pure, simple light of God that is non-spherot. So it comes out in Atik Yomen, we have to say that there's no spherot there, there's no attributes there. Ketzer, you have already a vague, in the outer part of Ketzer, you have at least a vague outline of spherot. But in Atik Yomen, you have no, because Atik Yomen is pure, ain't so. And that's why it's considered a light that's completely higher than any design, higher than creation, it's infinite. But still, it says that in some subtle, subtle, subtle way, the very fact that we're saying that this is Atik Yomen, removed from the days, implies that it has some relationship to this, it can't be removed from it. Removed from something implies that there is something to be removed from. So therefore it says that in a very, very vague way, Atik Yomen also has spherot attributes. And however, in the three highest attributes of Atik Yomen, which is the Chabad of Atik, very, very high in the three, over there resides the essence of the Orient Sof, which doesn't have any spherot at all. It's just pure Ein Sof light. That's called, that inner, inner point in the brain of Atik Yomen, so to speak, resides pure in Sof light. I'm going to see soon even more than light. That's called Pnimius Atik, the innermost of Atik Yomen. That is going to shine only when Mashiach comes in the mouth. The innermost of Atik Yomen. Okay. Yes. In Yana, this topic is to understand and to appreciate the 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 levels and uh, of where the world is making progress to, which of course, obviously, we, we haven't gotten to that yet. Um, and the the being that we're ready right now to enter into the time when the all of all of all of creation will recognize God. So it's important for us to understand what's what's. First of all, by the mere fact that we learn this, we cause it to happen. Secondly, um, we're, we can begin kind of synchronizing ourselves to this kind of revelation. It's the progression of humanity. To next level, which is Mashiach. And I have something very interesting over here, which you see as a result of all of this, that I think that that, pro, that, that last stage has already just begun in certain things that I'm seeing in the world, which I think is mamish reflecting what we're learning in the Maimon. Um, that's already my Chiddush. But I, I think uh, that's what's uh, exciting me about this discourse. But we're not going to get there now. So the three inner, innermost of Atik Yomen, which host the, the Ein Sof itself, that's called Pneumius Atik. What he is going to now differentiate is that why the... Th- He's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to bring a contradiction where in one place it says that only the, what's called Radla, Reisha Deloyes Galian, the head that is not revealed, only the very first element of Atik Yomen is hosting the Ein Sof. And in another place it says in Eitz Chaim, it's the three heads of Atik Yomen, all three. 
So he's going to explain that in the latter two, it's, it's what's revealing itself is the light of the Ein Sof, the Or Ein Sof, but not the essence of the Ein Sof. In the inner, inner element, in the first one of Atik you have Giloy of Atmos himself. Atmos meaning the essence, essence of God, not his light. And when we say Pninius Atik, we mean mainly this level. And this level is, is what we refer to later called the chesed that is given to Malchus that's above wealth. Let's read. Amam Shech Ba'amaymer, and he explains in the Maimer, the inyana chesed shuhu l'mayla gamma ashiras, the idea of chesed that is above even wealth, shalachen gemilas chasadim ugam l'ashirim, which for that reason gemilas chasadim is also for the wealthy, is the giloy, the revelation of the future. which is even greater. It's even greater than the revelation that was in Shleim. the flow of light that flowed into Malchus in the days of Shleim was from Atik Keniskalia, like we said earlier. It's going to be from the innermost of Atik. Hainu, what does that mean? Ein soif, the ein soif, shebir radla. Radla is a, a, a acronym for Reisha Daloy is Galia, the head that is not revealed, which is the top highest of the, of the benign spherot that there are in Atik. Vague, 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 shebir vague. The three highest are can hardly be called spheres, any type of keli, they can hardly be called that. Within that, the top, top one is called Reisha the Loyas which in it resides. Shu Iker Ha'inyan the Atik. That's the main idea of Atik. It's the, meaning Atik meaning removed. That's when you have pure, pure, pure light that's removed from any kind of whatsoever definition, constriction, limitation, uh, or anything. As you can now, he says, it, it, to be noted what it says in Zoyar Idra Zuta in the short Idra, which is the parts of Zohar that no one even learns, even those who study Zohar. The level of Atik finds itself in the three heads. And the Rachav explains, Reb Chaim Vital, the Bira Idra Zuta in the Bira. When we say atika, we mean the pure ainsof. So really, the real atik is the light, not even the it's not the it's not the vessels of keser, not the ration. The main is the pure pure light that's shining in. But But because he's becoming hidden, begimol ration in the three heads. So all three heads are also called Atik. Fine. However, according to this, the main Atik, who ain't soif, that is in all three heads. But in this Mimer, in this discourse, meaning the Rebbe Rashab's discourse from 102 years ago, which Radla is only the top head, not the other two. 
What's the difference? We can explain this. What he wants to really get to is he ever wants to prove that the next level that we're talking about, which is the Gili of Mashiach, is a complete different realm completely because it's not light, it's essence. That's, that's, why, that, that's why he's, why is he being so, why is he doing such a pill over here? It's because he wants to explain the difference between the panemius, panemius, panemius of the highest level. Others can, be, can still be called light. This is not light anymore. And what Reb Chav says, Reb Chaim Vital, when when Reb Chaim Vital says how the light resides in the three higher heads of Keser, how this light, he says three things about it. He says, Nimtza, these are the words of Reb Chaim Vital. Nimtza, it is to be found. Umis Alem, and it becomes hidden. Um is gale, and it reveals itself. Begimoration in the three heads. So the Rebbe, so the Rebbe Rishab says, the reason why he used these three terms, it is to be found, it is to be hidden, and it is to be revealed in these three heads. It's because he's referring to how he's manifesting in each one of these heads. In the first one, he is to be found. In the second one, he is hidden. And in the third one, he is revealed. So what in the world does that mean? Shegimel al-eshoinus nimtso mesalom u-mesgala, which referred to the three heads. Hem kemoi gimel, so the Rebbe Rashab goes, and the Rebbe Rashab says that you should know the idea of nimtza, mesalom, and mesgala, is similar to something else that it says, gimel and yonim, the three things where we say, atahu Hashem. A lot of times it says, So you have the word ata. What's ata mean? You. You means you as much as you are you. You as you are in your essence, that's you. Who, what does who mean? He. So we're talking about something that you, is hidden. Because he means he's not in front of us. He. So, so which one do you think is higher? Yeah, but which one do you think is higher? You or he? Generally, we would think that, oh, we might think that he is higher because usually the higher something is, the more hidden it is. You is open. You, God. Who means hidden. And, 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 and then the next word is Havaya, Yudke Vavke. Now, here's the idea Yudke Vavke, whenever we see God's name, Yudke Vavke, it's already a channel of revelation. What's the whole idea of a yud kevavke? Yud means God is revealing himself because he's beginning with a point. Hey, he's expanding. Vavke. The whole idea of a yud kevavke is a channeling. God's name is the way he manifests and he channels himself down to somewhere and to something. That's Havaya. So Havaya is revelation. So that fits with what Rabbi Chaim Vital says, Mizgala, he reveals. The pasuk, the, when the when, when the Reb Chaim Vital says that the orange soif is misalim, it's hidden. That fits with the word who, which who means he, which he means something that's hidden. It's opposite of avaya. Avaya is he's revealing himself through avaya. Who means he's a mystery? Who is he? We don't know who. Okay, ata you is is, is, is even beyond that. We'll see in a minute why. And, and it's interesting. The level beyond that is not hidden. 
even though it's higher. Because hidden is going to explain you can only say on something in which it can be revealed or hidden. But when we're dealing with the quintessence of God, it's not within that whole context of revealed or hidden. It just is. He exists in a complete non-existent manner. You cannot define it with any definitions, not in positive identification, negative identification, not in finite terms, not in infinite terms. There's nothing, and therefore that level doesn't lend itself at all to the revealed or hidden or the like. What then? So here's an amazing thing. We're gonna, we, this is going to be at the crux of this discourse. This, this, this is the main point, really, of everything. I mean, not, which we're, we're not going to get to in thorough understanding tonight, but I'm just going to... Is that the essence, based on what the Alter Rebbe says, an amazing thing. And I want you to hear this really well. He says that we know that when God initially created the world, it says that Hashem's light filled everything, everywhere and everything. And then in order to create the world, he rolled back his light, kind of created a black hole in the middle. And in that space, in that darkness, he created the creation. So the Alter Rebbe explains in many places that according to the Arizal, God never hid himself. There was no tzimtzum in the essence of God. The tzimtzum, the concealment, was only in his light. But the essence of Hashem remained untouched. Not only that, He's revealed. Where is He revealed? How does the Altar ever prove that the essence of God is revealed where? Everywhere. All the dimming of His light and concealment and all that is only in His light, not in Him. The essence of God is everywhere. And revealed everywhere. And the Altar ever says, you know how you know that? It's the fact that it is so natural to people even little children, to always say, thank God, uh, that people are so aware of God. And it's not an intellectual understanding, and understand, it's just a fact. And especially when it comes to little children, they gravitate to the idea of, a, of God as such a normal, natural thing. Yeah, God, it's not even a, why? Because really he's everywhere. He's so everywhere. He's so open. He's so much He's so far, yet so there. And that's why kids, he's emphasizing kids because we're dealing with, it's not an intellectual idea. It just, it's just, yeah. Talk to a two-year-old about God. It's like, yeah. Because, yeah. You have to convince a two-year-old that there is no God, chas v'shal. And even then he doesn't believe you. It's gets a little older, you can fadray him a cup, you fakak the brain, you can get to that place. But in, 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 in essence, the natural instinctive state of a little child that has some kind of awareness as he's two years old is that he buys and he asks you questions about Hashem all the time. You see kids always asking questions. Adults are like busy, leave me alone. The little kids are asking constantly questions about Hashem because Hashem is so real to them. Why? Because He's everywhere. But when we say God, when they're sensing God, they're not sensing God a revelation, meaning some definition. When a simple yid, when a simple person says, oh, God is going to help, who does he mean? Who is he referring to? This attribute, that attribute, he's not talking, there's no attributes. God, God, the, the, the all of entirety of God. 
When we say, see, let's understand something. When we say that God is God's essence is revealed everywhere, we, it's very different than when we say something else is revealed. Another level is revealed. See, every other level of godliness that we speak about revealing, every revelation means it's adapting to the place it's revealing. It's constricting itself. It's somehow coming down to reveal itself. So we say a yud ke yud has to first become a yud, or else it'll be overwhelming. That has to become a vav, then a hey, then a vav. It's a whole procedure, because a revelation usually means I'm taking something and I'm adjusting it to be revealed. When we say God Himself is revealed everywhere, it means He, as He is, without any, without any dilution, is everywhere. Does anybody get Him, grasp Him, understand how? Why? We're, no, but we just. The, the, the mere fact that he is, that, that is a given. So that means that in Atmos, he's revealed as he is everywhere in the world. And when we say he, he finds he's, he's present somewhere, he means he's present some, some everywhere without diluting himself at all as he is. We're going to see soon. Now, it's a very faint echo everywhere. When Mashiach comes, it's going to be like in focus, a gazillion times stronger than it is now. Now it's enough that little children say, God everywhere. We too say, oh my God. Like, 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 we always fall back to God because we sense that, that reality. We sense, we just know. But it's still a, a it's not, in other words, we don't really sense that he is the reality of me and everything all the time. When Mashiach comes suddenly that, there's going to be this sudden, I don't know what to say. <laughs> there's going to be suddenly this realization. Not intellectual, not understanding, just like, like a revelation that, that, that all is, all that is is only an expression of him. All that is. And it's not, there's, not, there's nothing outside of him. And everything is him. That that inherent revelation of that, that's what we're talking about, Mashiach, and that's the chesed that's coming into Malchus, the gili of Atzmas himself. That's called Nimtza, as opposed to Hu Havaya. Hu and Havaya is talking about already the light of Hashem. The light of Hashem has two stages. One stage is its initial stage when it's too bright, and that's why it's hidden. And then when it dims itself, it adjusts itself to reveal itself. That's a revelation of God as He is trying to fit Himself to our understanding and appreciation of His powers, of His light, of His abilities. These are, but it's not Him. That's His abilities, His talents, His strengths, His qualities. That's all already His projections. And that itself has two levels. Who and Havaya. But Atta. We say you, because that's everywhere and open. But the way it is everywhere is the way he truly is, not in any constricted way. Now the main atta resides in where, meaning its, its strongest residing is where is in that first head of Reisha, the lawyer's galleon. Over there it's revealed. And again, to some degree it's revealed in all of existence as a result of that. Two levels in the light. 
When we say nimtza, we mean that he is to be found as he is on his own. Based on this, we can explain what it says in the Mimer. The main idea of Atik that we're talking about is the Ein Sof that is in the Reish of Loyaz Galyan. Why? Because only over here, only in that first level, are we talking about Atzmos. The rest we're talking already about light. Ein Sof. Yes, pure light, it's still... The, it's not spherot, it's not attributes. It's pure Ein Sof light. It's simple light, but it's light. Which in light, we can speak of two levels. The light is, 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 is too powerful, it's hidden, or the light is descending, contracting, making itself understandable, receivable at various different levels throughout the entire Rishtalshalas. But beyond that all, there is his being, his very being himself. That is the way it is, unchanging. Now, based on this, we understand something really gewaltic. According to this, what we're really saying now, we understand why. Remember we said over here that a, that a wealthy person, if he's lacking, if you're giving him something that he had somewhat of a connection to before, you're just adding more, that means he wasn't, that means that he was never really wealthy. To give him something that's wealthy means he had everything, and what you're giving him is outside completely. So you understand it's like this. Shlomo Melech was wealthy, was called wealthy, because by Shlomo Melech, all the light was revealed. Every level of light, even the, even the or even the or ain't sof, and even the even even the havaya, and even the who, every level of light was revealed. But what was not revealed in him is the essence. That dimension was not. But here's the thing: since in the level of revelation of gil, of giloy of light, he had everything. He's called a wealthy. He's called wealthy because there's nothing lacking. This that was going to be added when Mashiach comes is not light. It's essence. And that's a complete different story. Hold on. On his own. There was real true wealth. How can we call it wealthy if he was lacking the revelation of Mashiach? The novelty that's going to be when Mashiach comes, the revelation of the essence, above the level of revelations. In all revelations, but it was only revelations and it wasn't essence. That reality shift, that complete that complete paradigm shift that's going to happen in all of existence, and that every creature and every being is going to recognize the rea- the, how they, they themselves are one with the beingness of the supreme being who is the beingness of everything, and that there cannot be existence that's not him, that kind of thing is going to See, that idea is going to be explained in the next two pieces. Very, very, very gishmak. The idea of the difference when it's a revelation of light or when it's a revelation of essence. That's a very important, crucial idea. And why, when it's a revelation of light, it, it, it doesn't reach everywhere. You have to be sensitive to light. Those who get it and those who don't get it. Those that are... The ultimate sign that you have the revelation of the essence is when it's even coarse and very coarse and lowly entities and beings 
become completely synchronized with God and do God's will. Almost inherently, instinctively, and naturally, not through a thought process, not through an intellectual conception. It's just whatever God wants becomes what is. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and being that I advertised on today, she wrote out that this is relating to current events. Here is my bomb in all of this, which I've been talking about the last few weeks. I think that when Trump was elected president, this was the instrument of God when this new order is beginning to kick in. It was a miracle. It was not normal. And what I'm saying is it's coming at a time when the Jewish people need to be protected because there's a a, a gang up that we see now as this president, current president, is leaving a horrible mess in the world. And what I'm saying is the fact that what we're learning in the Mimer, that the ultimate revelation of God is when a rich man receives something infinitely beyond richness, which is in our case kingdom, power, and it's in a manner where the rich man wasn't lacking anything. So in that, and on the other hand, I see in him a person who is coarse and low and vulgar in many ways, but at the same time is making choices to do the exact right thing what God wants. I'm seeing the lowest of the low flipping over intrinsically, and at the same time, his kingship, meaning his power, is in the, in, matches what the mimer says is the power of Mashiach's light, which is coming dafka to a rich man. So people get very worried because we're talking about a person who doesn't seem to be fit by, to be president, yet exactly that is the whole point, that a, a, a coarse lower being is completely synchronized with what God wants, and that's what I see happening um, very strongly in the world now. But to really get this, you have to see the next piece. It's just if we do this, it's going to be another two, two three hours to us to really finish uh, and understand. I think we built up the idea of three possible revelations in Malchus, three possible consequences. He's going to explain soon that the revelation of Shlomo Melech only touches the sparks of holiness but it doesn't touch the actual creation itself as it is a creation, not the spark in it. As, as things are just as they are, not, not when things are inspired. You see, Shlomo Melech, is, his light is looking and it's, and it's, and it's spreading all over the world and, it's, and, and who's picking it up? Beep, 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 this great light. Those that are in touch with their spark. The spark is beeping. It's nothing to do with the spark. This has to do with a certain level of, of recognition. When, when suddenly the essence of God, who from the essence of God, as Maimonides says, all of existence emanates f- from his essence and there cannot be any being that's not him because that's all that is, is him. That, that encompasses everything. Everything, everything. And even that which is... Even that which is not a keli, a vessel for any kind of light, and for any kind of... Just... as we, I don't even know what the words to use. Just innately becomes... Not, I don't even think so much in a conscious, but just automatically shifts into a consistency with God's will. And when we're, when we're standing today's days by a situation, by a crucial moment, where what we see is the war that's happening in the world now is the war against Jerusalem and against and to, to keep God away from his home and from his ultimate temple. That's the situation. 
And we see that the appointed person that he had... Um, by the way, I saw something very interesting. I've been following a little bit because I'm, I'm very excited about the news. And I've been following a little bit, a little, a little bit. Even though I generally for years didn't... Uh, there's this fellow by the name of Glazerson who does the, the Torah code. So he finds these fascinating things. So right now, his last one, which I saw just now, was uh, he finds the United Nations and Obama and Snake and Amalek all in these very, very powerful places all coming together. The years, Tufshin, I and Zion, this time, this is going to happen. These, you see it all. But the other thing is, in the parsha of Yosef, who is the advisor for Paro, which is this week's parsha, and then he appoints him. Right in there, you have Donald Trump, David Friedman, um, who, is the, who is his ambassador and his counselor in regards to matters of Israel. And in there it says, Donald Trump, Oev Yisrael, the one who loves the Jewish people. And as opposed to whenever it speaks about Obama, it speaks about Sona Yisrael, Amalek, Snake. Uh, it's like scary. And this is all, and he, and he shows you the tables, and he shows you. It's different, it, it depends on... The more, the more concentrated things are in a smaller parsha, the stronger the code is. It's very interesting. The more, sometimes you have a, a word crossing. The way it works is it's a certain, the Torah code means you're working with skipped letters. You see a pattern in which a certain amount, the letters come out in a, on a table lined like this, going crisscross. So it's really, really interesting. So I have a lot of certainty that we're seeing some something amazing godly happening in the world that is beyond in in Parshas Miketz he finds I forgot already what else he has there David Friedman Donald um, Yosef yeah it's in YouTube look him up David Glazerson he has no 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 his name is Rabbi Glazerson um, I forgot his first name he's got like uh, Glazerson yeah hold on just think about what where does he find the gang up against in the UN against Israel and against he finds it also in very interesting places that like it's not just that he finds a code it usually is found in the parshias that match what the Torah is talking about back then and you see it like emerging right over here at these same places like Yosef being an advisor and uh, for it's like really really cool